Five, four, three, two. Greetings, Dr. Beckett. Welcome to the Quantum Leap Podcast. Activate the time machine. Stand by the time accelerator. Uh, uh, standing. Bye-bye. Activate now. listening to the Quantum Leap Podcast. This is episode 43, Future Boy. You are a young actor named Kenny Sharp. According to Ziggy, there's a 96.2% chance you're here to save the life of another actor named Mo Stein. Captain Galaxy? Well, sometime after 12 noon tomorrow... He apparently gets killed trying to hop a southbound freight train. When I first started playing Captain Galaxy, I became fascinated with the thought of actually being able to travel in time. Yeah, but when you say time machine, you mean a time machine like like on your show, right? No, 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 that's fantasy. This is real. Time is like a piece of string. One end of the string is birth, the other is death. You put them together, and your life is a loop. Well, what, let me ask you, what would happen if... Um, you would ball the string, and then each day of your life would touch another day. And then you could travel from one place on the string to another, thus enabling you to move back and forth within your own lifetime, maybe. That's it. That's it. Then I could actually quantum leap. Quantum leap. Ziggy says the only way you can save this Mo is by having him committed to a mental institution. Hello, everyone. I'm Christopher DeFilippis. I'm Alison Pregler. And I'm Matt Dale. And you are listening to a very special episode of the Quantum Leap podcast, because today we will be talking about the season three episode, Future Boy, and we have a very special guest host to help us do so, the episode writer himself, Tommy Thompson. Tommy, welcome to the Quantum Leap podcast. Oh, thanks. Thanks for having me. This is your second time on the podcast, is it not? I, I remember you did I think so. yeah, a huge interview with Al. Yeah, we talked a few years ago, I think, and uh, you guys couldn't get me off the phone. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, we don't want you to get off the phone because we want to hear everything that you have to tell us about Future Boy. I think I can uh, speak for everybody when I say it's an episode we all remember fondly. Yep. Yeah, I do too. We're also really excited this time to bring you an interview with Captain Galaxy himself, Richard Hurd. Yeah, I got to tell you guys, it was surreal. I had such a wonderful conversation with Richard, and not only did we speak about his appearances on Quantum Leap, you know, he played Captain Galaxy, but he was also Ziggy in the series finale Mirror Image. And don't worry, guys, no spoilers. I mean, we talk about it very generally, but he was just such a gentleman. And we talk about his long acting career, what he's up to these days, and Tommy, he had nothing but great things to say about you. Yeah, we got along. We got along really well. He's such a nice man. He like I've met a few of those guys along the the way. Guys that you you know he's I think Richard's in his mid eighties now. So you know he's a guy that I probably watched when I was a kid on you know like network westerns and stuff. You know like bonanzas and I, I mean not specifically that, but I know I'd seen him. So 
when I became a writer and a producer and I would go into casting sessions, I would see these guys. And from my youth, I would say, I've got to bring these guys in. You know, I mean, like I did an episode and I can't remember if it was a quantum or it was another show I was doing with Ed Asner. And, you know, Ed Asner was he was like, you know, Mary Tyler Moore's boss. He was like the guy I watched when I was a kid that I was developing my ideas about being a television writer. And he's the kind of guy that, and Richard's this kind of guy too, that after, you know, he, he did the episode and then like a week later, you get like a handwritten letter from the guy thanking you. And, <laughs> you know, it's old school. It's like stuff that the young actors don't do. And um, so Richard's in that category. He's one of those old school guys that, you know, in many ways, Richard's like the ultimate hustler, right? Yeah, he's in everything. <laughs> yeah, he's not a guy that got stinking rich being an actor. He's a, and it's a, a, to me, it's a compliment. He's a journeyman actor. He's a guy that's grounded out for 60 years and um, he's always hustling it. And, you know, a- after we did Future Boy, I swear to God, he would call me once every couple of weeks and pitch me a future boy spinoff. Nah, he, he has alluded to that <laughs> in oh, the yeah. interview. So <laughs> yeah, he always wanted Captain Galaxy to have his own series. Now, I think partly it endeared me to him because I know he loved the character and I, and I, I'll speak to that as we talk about the episode, but he is a guy that's out there beating the bushes, creating opportunities for himself. And, you know, that's something that, you have to do if you're a 20 year old actor. And if you have to do it, if you're an 85 year old actor, you've got to get out there. And I mean, I live in a little neighborhood in the Valley. It's not a a rich neighborhood. It's not a a bad neighborhood. It's kind of your typical little neighborhood, little houses. And I'd swear uh, up and down my street, there's all kinds of actors and, and writers. And, you know, I mean, it's a grind for 80, 9% 9% of the people in this business. So I admire Richard and I just uh, so excited to see him because my favorite movie last year was Get Out. And to see him show up in that movie, I nearly came out of my seat in the movies. And I was so happy, even though it's a, it's a tiny little part, it's the creepiest part of the movie. We talked about <laughs> that <know>? too. <laughs> yeah. And he, and he sells it with such weirdness. I know why, uh, Peel cast him because he's got that every man quality, but there's something just a little off about, you know, the whole thing. And it was perfect. And I was mostly I was happy that he was in a great movie and that he's being seen and maybe he'll get some work out of it, you know? Yeah. And he's definitely not keeping still. I mean, he's doing a ton more yeah, stuff and no. we talk about everything that he's got coming up in the interview as well. So everybody stay tuned for that. We'll bring that later Good. in the podcast. But Tommy, usually when we begin the podcast, we like to get initial impressions of the episode right off the bat. And I want to do that, but I mean, you wrote a lot of Quantum Leap episodes. So what is it about Future Boy that made you decide that you wanted to join us on this episode of the podcast? Let me have your initial impressions. Well, for me, the episode, and I divorced myself from the process at this point. It's like somebody wrote a a song and you ask them how they wrote it. And they talk about divine inspiration or the you know, something opened up and it came into them. And that's really all I can attribute the episode to. Because for me, if anybody asked me, I want to know what Quantum Leap is about, I'd say go watch that episode. Because it's to me, it's the perfect Quantum Leap episode in terms of the premise of the show. And, you know, I mean, look at that episode. I mean, when I wrote it, I didn't have the idea 
that it was going to complete a circle, you know, of Sam inspiring this crazy old man that would eventually inspire him. So it's a, it's a circle of inspiration. It's like, it, you don't know where it breaks and where it, where it begins and where it ended. It's, it's one to the other to the other. And um, when it occurred to me in my little room that I had gotten a hold of that, the hair on my neck just stood up and I was like, if they let me get away with this, you know, cause <laughs> you always had the question of, okay, is this too on the nose or is this too out there for Don? Cause Don was a, you know, Don's a conservative guy in a lot of ways, but the thing that I think Don liked about me and why he initially hired me was because he liked that I was silly. He liked that I could be, uh, I could once write stuff that was very moving, but I could also be funny and kid-like. And, and, you know, I remember when I went to pitch to Don the first time I pitched him four or five ideas and he bought Oh, like all of them. But the first thing I pitched was, it was the trapeze thing. I No, that was the last thing I pitched because I pitched that going out the door. Um, I pitched him something and I said, I said something about, and then Al has this ro- pet roach named Kevin. And he just started <laughs> laughing and he thought that was so funny. And then occasionally through my whole run on Quantum, I would pass him in the hall and he'd just go, Kevin, the roach. And he would just start <laughs> laughing. And, and so I, and I didn't think it was that funny, but something about that, like silliness, Don liked that. And not a lot of the other writers didn't like write that way. So I was always hopeful that Don would let me, like when we get to the part in the episode where I just put it on the page and Sam says like quantum leap and Mo says, quantum leap like it's like that's it you you eureka you've come up with it you know uh, i thought there's not a way in, in hell that don's gonna let me <laughs> say this, you know and he did he, it just it never you know every time we'd have a notes meeting i expect that's gonna get thrown out and it never got thrown out so i was really appreciative that he let that episode play with the premise you know because there's not a lot of i mean you guys would probably remember better than me but i don't remember a lot of episodes that played so directly with the premise Matt, I think you can take that. Uh, Tommy, in case you don't know, Matt wrote the book on Quantum Leap. He <laughs> oh. is the author of Beyond the Mirror Image. You're the guy, man. You, you, you need to tell me. Yeah, I'm, I'm the hired expert, apparently. <laughs> I absolutely agree. I, I didn't really appreciate how much in the, the process you'd pushed that and felt you were pushing the limits because it seems so natural that, yeah, that, that episode is the go-to point for everything that is quantum leap right up into the moment even the moment where and i think maybe don had jumped on board so with both feet at this point and i think i may have asked him what if when captain galaxy's time machine is revving up if we see him start to leap if we just get a (laughs) sense that this is starting to crackle and I think he just thought about it. And he goes, well, let's see what it looks like. And then when he saw it, he went, that's fantastic. You know, and mm. so I had to almost like spoon it to him. But I knew in my mind, I'm going to take every opportunity here to push this thing. You know, I'm going to I'm going to push it as far as I can and see what happens. But uh, they, they were very, very, very generous on that episode. Yeah, I think we're all so pleased that you managed to get away with everything you managed to get away with, because so many of those little pieces are fan-pleasing, but in the best possible way. What I really liked about watching the episode again, and I'd forgotten, was it's so campy. 
It's so campy <laughs> yes. in the sense that it, but it, it has to be, it's fifties live children's mm. television. So it has to be campy, but then it's really heartfelt and it's like, it's got real emotion in it. And so I was, you know, it's like all the things that I really like about movies and TV that I watch is if it can be a little <laughs> bit of a lot of things. And I have to go back to Richard Hurd because I made a note as I was watching the episode. It's the first note on my piece of paper here. Hurd sold it, you know, and he believed so much in that character. I mean, by the time they're shooting these episodes, you got to realize I'm on to something else, you know. I'm writing something else and I'm just wandering down to the set every once in a while to see what's going on. And you count on the actors to keep that enthusiasm alive for you. And Richard was so great at that. I mean, if you watch him, he's just, he came up, I think him and Scott came up with the whole arm thing, the whole salute and you know <laughs> all that, that weirdness that was like, it's perfect. It's like, you know, I didn't write that. It's the, those two guys were playing on the set and um, filled in the white part of the paper, which is the actor's job. So yeah, it was, uh, I'm glad everybody responded to it. Well, that's a terrific beginning. Tommy, we want to talk about that and a whole bunch more, but first, why don't we listen to an episode recap? Season 3, Episode 13, Future Boy. Leap date, October 6th, 1957. Original broadcast date, March 13th, 1991. Written by Tommy Thompson. Directed by Michael Switzer. Escaping the pain of labor is leaping out of the frying pan, finding oneself dressed like a baked potato, and landing in the fire. Sam appears to be on the inside of a spaceship, but upon exiting while simultaneously falling and injuring his leg, he finds that it is just a soundstage of a television show, and they are recording a 1950s live children's television series. Sam is Future Boy, the sidekick of time-traveling superhero Captain Galaxy, portrayed by the elderly but accomplished Shakespearean actor Mo Stein. Mo ad-libs the final few lines of the episode, believing the original lines to be too violent for children, replacing them with a more positive message. Immediately after the episode ends, Mo and Sam are scolded by the director, but Mo is unfazed. Al, having just arrived, scares Sam. His attire, a dull brown suit, is so somber that Sam thinks somebody must have died. Al just has a court date. His fourth wife, Sharon, is suing him for more alimony. In the dressing room, Mo is visited by his daughter Irene, who has arranged an appointment for him to have his mental health assessed by a doctor. Sam is surprised by this, seeing Mo as just an eccentric dreamer, but Mo has in recent times proved mentally unstable and potentially dangerous, as he is easily distracted and confused. So far, he has crashed his car and nearly burnt his house down. Irene believes that her father needs to be hospitalized. Irene is very angry with her father, as while she was growing up, he was usually on the road acting in productions, and he didn't even come home when his wife, her mother, died. Sam asks Irene if it would be better for everyone if she let go of her anger and attempted to patch up their relationship by taking care of him herself. But having a family of her own, she doesn't believe it possible to take care of another child. Al 100% agrees with Irene and informs Sam that this is the reason he leapt here. Mo dies the next day trying to hop a train and needs to be institutionalized for his own safety. Sam tries to convince Mo to see a doctor and prove himself sane. He agrees to have Sam, the doctor, and Irene over for dinner, but shows Sam a project he has been working on, a time machine. Mo explains his theory of time travel, which is remarkably 
Like Sam's own string theory, Sam helps Mo to fill in the missing pieces and even coins the term Quantum Leap. And with that eureka moment for Mo, he changes his plans and tells Sam that he will make his leap the next day. For the rest of the day, Sam must fulfill his actor's duties. And with Mo making a live Q&A appearance to a group of children as Captain Galaxy and Future Boy. When asked, Sam gives a very accurate prediction of what the future would be like and reassures a sad child whose dog has died from running on the road when the gate was left open that while they could go back in time and bring him back, that the dog is at peace and his death didn't hurt. Mo thinks he will be able to prevent the dog's death, and Sam advises Mo not to talk about his time travel plans with the doctor. At the dinner, Mo serves an upside-down chicken, which, while unusual, proves to be delicious. While clearing away the dishes, Mo goes against Sam's advice and tells the doctor about his time machine. When attempting a demonstration, Mo very nearly blows up the house and everyone in it. The next day, Al is in attire more fitting for his personality and explains that after a night of passion, Sharon dropped the lawsuit. At the competency hearing, Sam speaks on Mo's behalf and gives a touching speech about the world's progress due to dreamers like Mo Stein. But due to the dangerous situation that he put them in the night before, the judge rules against Mo and sentences him to be hospitalized. Distraught, Mo jumps out the window and runs away. Sam and Irene find him at his home in his time machine, which he has set going. He yells at Irene a promise to be a better father to her and to bring her mother some calla lilies. Mo begins to glow blue as though he is about to quantum leap, but ultimately his time travel experiment is unsuccessful. Mo breaks down in tears and explains that he just wanted a chance to be a family with Irene and her mother. Now realizing how much her father loves her, Irene reconciles with Mo and agrees that he can live with her. The next day on the Captain Galaxy show, Mo announces his retirement and reads one final piece of viewer mail from a young Sam Beckett, who asks Captain Galaxy to explain his theory of time travel, realizing that he has indirectly taught his younger self his own string theory. Sam leaps. Thank you, Zoe, for that episode recap, and uh, I guess we're going to get right into it. This was an episode that had a lot to do with the mythology of the show, and I really appreciated. There's a lot of episodes of the show that have some sort of parallel to Sam in some sort of way, but this is the most direct parallel to him as a person, to his story. They're both... Uh, time travelers or potential time travelers. And, and there's lots of parallels to his life, uh, both in the show and in um, the show within the show and with Sam's uh, direct life. So you have things like the string theory or uh, the little hand link that Captain Galaxy is holding. I thought that was just great. Was Sam always intended to learn his string theory from Captain Galaxy or was it more of a self-fulfilling prophecy? Well, I mean, you could, yeah, I mean, obviously when I finished the script, it was there, but it wasn't 
what I went into the episode to say. I didn't come in and say, I got this great idea where I can tie everything up in the show and we can figure out where Sam came from. You know, it, it just, it sort of found me, which is the way it works when you're writing. If it's good, it starts to write itself at some point. You know, it's just like I used to tell when I was running series, I would tell, you know, young staffs, I would say, you know, we'll get to a point where this show is riding us right now. It's on our backs, but we'll get to a point if it's right, where we'll be riding it and it'll feel like a ride, but it won't feel like heavy lifting anymore. And that's what happens in writing. You know, the beginning, when you're putting it, the story together, it's a lot of heavy lifting. It's, it's moving things around. It's trying things. It's, and so I just started writing this character the idea of a character, I think it started really with the idea of this guy was, I think I want, you know, I remember I was thinking back on it. I, I never really bought into the whole, in the episode, the train bit where he ran and jumped on the train and died on the train. <laughs> I, I, ne- I never quite got that because that came from other places on the show than myself. I originally had him committing suicide. That was Captain Galaxy's future. He had just everything had fallen apart at the end. He was going to go into this home. He was going to lose his show. He was going to lose everything that meant anything to him. And he was going to kill himself, but that was way too dark for everybody. <laughs> but me, I thought that was perfect. I thought the balance of <laughs> that with the kitty show stuff was, that's my wheelhouse. So uh, <laughs> I, I quickly learned from, and this was early, pretty early on in my tenure at quantum that that wasn't going to happen. So I think Chris, maybe Rupenthal was sort of with me on this episode in places like Chris wrote the whole mailbag thing, the Miracle on 34th ripoff where the letters come in. I think Chris wrote that sequence. And I think he came up with the train thing too, which I wrote, but I, I was always like, I don't know why. And I guess we had to have him die at some in some manner, but I I had had him taking his own life and I guess for a primetime TV on a show like Quantum <laughs> that was a little dark. Although I think we went darker places in other episodes, but I guess just with the tone of this one and you know, sometimes Don would get a bug up his butt and not want to do something and you just couldn't move him on it. So I just <laughs> quickly surrendered to the train bit and and just thought, okay, well I'll just hang on and make sure everything that I really, really care about gets done on this episode. Cause it's always, especially when you don't, when you don't have the power that I had later on the show, not the power, but just the ability to keep my stuff the way I wanted it. You know, you have to surrender and, it, and it's a give and take. So I was willing to give the suicide if I could keep some of the uh, stuff that relates to the question about, was this episode intended to be the one that connects all the theories about time travel, but it wasn't, it just got there. And I, and I think I mentioned earlier when I realized I had it, I was so happy. I was just like, Oh, I got this. This is going to be amazing. And then I just wrote it. I wrote all that in an hour. I think it it just was just there. It was perfect. You know, it was like, this is like the one that the fans are going to love because it's like, (laughs) Oh, did Sam get the idea from him? Did he get it from Sam? You know, where's this all coming from? But I don't think it would have worked. I mean, you guys can agree or disagree, but I don't think it would have worked if we hadn't put in that moment where you almost saw him leap. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Mo, if he hadn't actually come close to it, you would have not believed that Sam could have actually been inspired by this guy. You know what I mean? 
Yeah, and I kind of really like that aspect of the episode because not only is it just great fan service and we lap it up, so thank you, Tommy, but um, I like the fact that you present Mo so dynamically in the sense that he is really a kook and he is really a sincerely good guy and he is actually really a genius too because he almost had it. Yeah, he's an idealist. He's the part of me that wants everything to be great, but the world likes to tear down people like that, you know. But I love that the, those aspects of him didn't have to be mutually exclusive. He could be all of those things. Right. And Richard right. is such a dynamic actor that he was able to play it every which way and still come across believable. Yeah, I think, like I said, it only worked because I got lucky and cast Richard in that part. And I think that's why he connected with it so strongly because it, it probably had a lot of now that, you know, after I got to know him a little bit, you know, Richard is Mo in a lot of ways. He's <laughs> he is a good guy and he's, you know, he's a little nutty and out there. And so it just, I think it touched something in him. And plus, you know, I mean, Richard didn't get at, at that time. I don't think he was getting a lot of really meaty parts at, in that year or, or whatever that period of his career was. So when actors get a hold of a nice little part, they don't want to let it go. You know, he wants to go perform this every night in some theater somewhere, you know. So I, you know, I always appreciated his enthusiasm for wanting to resurrect uh, Captain Galaxy, which I'm sure <laughs> whenever I talk to him the next time he's going to come up within the first five minutes, we start talking. <laughs> <laughs> That's fine. Please make it happen. Yeah. Do you think we could do this like as a one man show or a <laughs> Captain Galaxy, a night with Captain Galaxy? Listen, and, you could hit the con circuit with that. You'd, you'd clean up. Yeah, I mm. don't know. I don't know if we if I don't know if we have that much of a, an appeal. Right <laughs> but, uh, well, let me can I take it back uh, a, a bit, Tommy? I mean, yeah. I know that this one eventually, as you were writing it, you said it, it sort of it took over you and it clicked to become the one that that put all these little bits of the mythology into place and the string theory and all that. But when you first set out to write the episode, clearly those parts came later. So what themes were you trying to tackle when you first thought of this and how did it evolve in addition to um, that you know the show minutiae that we all yeah, love, yeah, but yeah. but what was sort of the story's journey? What was your inception, and and how did it hit the air? The same theme that dominated almost every thing I've ever written: my relationship with my father. You know, it's I I have a not a great relationship with my dad, and um, my wife said to me one time, <laughs> I was about ten years into my career, and she goes, "You ever look at your stories?" And I think, "What?" <laughs> she goes, "They're all about your father," and I said. Yeah, I guess they are, you know, so this one was just instead of me, it was his daughter. It was a father daughter, but it was still it was all about, you know, trying to heal a relationship. And so you write you can only write what you you know, what you know. I mean, you know, I don't think any of the other writers on the show could have written this episode. I don't think they could have written nowhere to run. You know, I mean, that was out of my life. That was, you know, I only can write my own experiences and, and you can make up stuff obviously, but at the core of it, you have to have some connection to the emotions of, of it, or it feels false and it feels forced. And, um, but, uh, yeah, they always start with an emotional hook. I mean, you know, Don would always say, um, heart and humor, heart and humor. And that's what he wanted in every episode. So I thought that as far as that prescription, this this episode uh, had it pretty well covered. I mean, I was 
I'd forgotten about some of the stuff in the episode, like the scene with the kids at the roller rink and the story about the dog. Well, mm. you know, as I'm watching it, I'm thinking, oh, man, this is like, this is so schmaltzy. This is so on the nose. But I think, again, it worked in the context of the time that this took place in the 50s and the world that we had created here, that it was it was a different place. It was a more idealistic uh, world. We hadn't entered the tech revolution and we hadn't, you know, things were simpler in a lot of ways. So mm. I had to get into a more a mindset of oh, yeah, remember where these people are, remember what's happening in there and the, on the planet. And um, it's OK to be a little broader, a little campier because it felt like I mean, if you watch a movie like American Graffiti, it seems like campy now it seems but that's the way the world was then you know that that's what kids were concerned about you know that's what the music was that's how they dressed that's how they talked so uh, quantum was always a challenge because that's what we had to do we had to make sure we were correct to the period whatever period we were we were putting ourselves in and you know that's why i loved doing the show because it wasn't like any other show that was on the air at the time. It, it, they were little movies, you know, every week was a little movie. So, but it started with that. It starts, it always started with, with my own problems and my own situation, <laughs> my own history. So, uh, that's where the whole idea for the movie started. And what was your, um, inspiration to make it into like a live TV environment from the fifties? Just looking for a visual world that we hadn't been in. You know, I'd made a note when I first got on the show that live television would be a good palette for something. I didn't know what it was, but I always had that up on my board in my office, like do something in live TV. And I didn't know whether I would do Sam as a comedy writer on Sid Caesar or Sam as Ed Sullivan type guy or something like that. But when this came along, I thought, well, this is perfect. I can explore a kid's show and Jean-Pierre killed it with the costumes. And it was just, it was great. You know, it was fun to go down to those sets and cue cards and just all the, mm. the, the little stuff that, that, you know, as you're watching it, you like go, oh, man, look at those big cue cards. That's right. They use cue cards. And, and just as a, as a writer, getting back in touch with that stuff. So that's just fun. That's just what the show offered us as writers. Oh, we can go create a circus and go down to stage nine on the lot and they've built a circus, you know, or we can create a mummy's tomb and oh my god look they built us a tomb you know me and chris and paul brown used to stand around and watch these sets that would be built and we would just like look at each other and like can you believe they're gonna build this thing i mean we just made this up and they're gonna build this for us <laughs> so it was like it, we were in awe of that stuff and i remember rupenthal saying one day enjoy this because they're not going to do this forever they're not going to spend this kind of money forever on this show and we're going to have to start writing these things in a vacuum. And, uh, and he was right. It was like the next year they cut our budget and we had to get really creative and weren't able to do the big, big extravaganzas that we had in the beginning. But that happens on any show. You know, it's just commerce. Speaking of that costume, Richard said that he regrets that he never got to keep it. <laughs> well, I know what happened to it. 
<laughs> you do, Allison? What happened to it? I saw specifically his on an episode of Sliders. <laughs> I thought I saw it again, really? too. I thought and, I saw that on, an, and I don't know if it was, it wasn't Sliders, but I thought I saw it one night on TV, too. I was like, wait a minute, that, that looks very familiar. It's too good to go to waste. You could tell that someone had tried to alter the G pretty badly. In that Sliders episode, John Kassir is wearing it, but you can tell it's, it's the Captain Galaxy outfit. That's very funny. You know, that's what I meant about money. They weren't going to let that costume go. That, that They're going to get 10 <laughs> uses out of that thing. Are you kidding? <laughs> but uh, it's probably still hanging in some uh, costume place at Universal. But um, if I'd thought more about it, I would have gone out and stole that little spaceship that the uh, came in on the wire. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I was taking that. But I, I was even thinking about that kind of stuff back then. I was so busy trying to keep my job at that point it didn't really occur to me to, to go steal any props oh man yeah that little proto hand link was great too like done in the the 50s style exactly and 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 you you'd mentioned that that looked like a prototype to what al had and i'd forgotten about that and i was like wow the touches that our production people did beyond what was on the page you know that's the beauty of tv is it's just such a team sport you know and you have these meetings and like the prop guy would go well, why don't i build like a crude looking one that and you just go great you just accelerated the whole concept another step so when you've got a really great team it gets better and better and then people think i came up with it all <laughs> i think that was in the script though the proto handling because i i read a, a version of it yeah and i might have written it in after a production meeting you know like like if somebody said, I can build one that, you know, and I go, okay, I'll, I'll write that in, you know. So I don't remember if it came that way or if it came uh, from me and then they just built it. But um, I always took every good idea I could from anybody that, that had it and uh, put it in there. So, Well, what I loved about that Proto Hand Link was it really did harken back to almost like a kid's yeah. toy. It's something you would have gotten in your Cocoa Puffs and... <laughs> With the with propeller, the beanie, and I don't think we can get off the costumes yet without talking about Mr. Scrubbo. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah. I, you know what? I think I do actually have not the giant costume, but I have a oh. box of Mr. Scrubbo in my garage somewhere. <laughs> uh, That's that amazing. I, that, that somebody gave me. But yeah, that was just another, you know, I said, as I was writing the episode, I thought, all right, so you have live TV, then you had live commercials. <laughs> so let's write a live jingle. And I think we, I wrote like so many different jingles that just wouldn't get cleared, like products. And then finally we got this Brillo pad thing that they've said, okay, you can do that. <laughs> it'll, be, it'll be safe. And then Scott never said no. I've never said no to me. You know, he was like, I'm not getting in that Brillo pad costume. <laughs> you know, he, he loved it. He, he would do whatever you, you asked him to do. And um, so, yeah, that was fun. That was, again... Where am I going to get a chance to do that? But on this show, you know. That was a, a great visual. And uh, I loved that the costume, it squished as he walked. As, as if he was <laughs> wet or something. Yeah. It did look very used. It, it, looked, it looked a bit saggy. But then you got to remember, he had, he had also hurt himself right before this episode. Yeah. And um, was we, you know, at some one point I know... We talked about shutting down because he was really hurt and could barely walk. And then um, I think he just sucked it up and said, no, let's go. And we'll, I'll write it. You know, I said, well, I'll write it in. I'll write, you know, when you come out of the ship, you fall. 
and then your limp makes sense. And he just powered on, but I know his ankle uh, was in really bad shape. So when I watch him dancing around like that, I know it was really killing him. Yeah, you can barely see that limp on screen, um, apart from just after he's fallen. Yeah, when he's and I think his yeah. his uh, ankle got progressively better as the week yeah. went on. Um, and he was getting treatment, but in the beginning, it was pretty pronounced when he came out mm. so much so that we really had to, we couldn't ignore it. We had to, and then I think even Richard ad-libbed something about what, what happened to your leg or are you okay at, at one point? And he just goes, yeah, I'm, I'm fine. I'm fine. But, um, we just didn't want everybody going, why is, why is Sam limping all of a sudden, you know? Yeah, they did make a big deal out of it in universe. Um, mm. I guess rightfully so. I mean, if, if someone did take a spill like Sam took out of that spaceship, <laughs> that was very yeah. convincing. That was in a written into a, a couple episodes at least, and I didn't notice that he kept injuring like the same leg. <laughs> and then knowing that later, it's like, oh yeah, that makes perfect sense. Right. Right. Can you give us the production timeline on this? Because obviously, he injured his foot during the filming of Runaway. So I guess that Future Boy was the one next up in the hopper that they had to shoot? I can't remember. I just know I got a call saying Sam's hurt or Scott's yeah. hurt. Uh, and then we all went down and and it was like we were going to start shooting like the next day. So it was shut down. Now let's just yeah. figure it out. And any stunts he's got in the thing, take him out and uh, – just address it and we'll move on. So just another problem. Yeah. So Future Boy probably straight after the incident in Runaway then. Yeah, it had to have been right after that. Yeah. Now, another question I had about the script is it seemed almost arbitrary that you had mentioned that the episode took place two days after the Sputnik launch. But when you go back to Don's directives about heart and humor, I also know that he was big on creating a sense of place and nostalgia. Yeah, history, yeah. Was that, was that something he added or was that no, something you always intended? I think, it, I think it all made sense. You know, we, we were always, okay, pick a time, pick a year. It worked for live TV to do it in that time period, it was sort of the end of live television. And there were still live kids shows, you know, regionally around the country. But um, it made sense that if we were going to do this thing about this space show to connect any historical moments that I could to, to it, there were just good references. There were good quantum leap uh, moments, you know, just to, to reference, uh, okay, so now, you know, it's a, it, it's a good thing we get to remind people, oh, yeah, there, there was a space race that was going on. That's why this show probably would have been very popular with kids. And it's just tying the whole world into that episode and making that episode feel as real to that moment as you could possibly make it, you know? Sure. And it worked. Yeah, it was it was easy. It was you know, it's like okay, what was happening in fifty seven? Okay, that, okay, I'll I'll change the date on this. I'll set this. You know, we we're always putting. You know, when you start an episode, you're always using your kids' birthdays or your parents' birthdays, <laughs> something on there, and um, and so then you just go, okay, I'll go back and change it. When with Spudnik, I'll make this two days uh, after that. Those were just technical adjustments you had to make on most episodes. I loved Richard Hurd's performance as, as Mo. I thought that he brought uh, a really great personality to the character. I, I did read a version of the script, and I felt he, he brought even more to it. And uh, Mo was Sam. There re really were a lot of parallels between their lives. Uh, they were both 
eccentric people that maybe others thought were crazy, but they were really were geniuses. Both of them jumped into their experiment before it was really ready and uh, some bad consequences happened. Um, they both had a, a great optimism for the future and, and want to make things better. And it also makes me wonder, and I don't think this was something that you had in mind, but maybe, if Sam's intentions for leaping back in time were similar, like maybe he had some other motivations, something that he wanted to correct. For instance, he missed his dad's funeral, just like Mo missed his wife's funeral, or um, success sort of isolating them from the people that they love. And, and that's something that I sort of thought about while I was watching it. Well, those kind of things, I always remember like interviews, not that I'm equating this with anything like the Beatles, but I always remember listening to McCartney and Lennon talk about the interpretation of their lyrics years after they had written the song and how so many things would come out of the music that they hadn't noticed when they wrote it or that were almost subconscious, maybe. So I think a lot of that stuff, specifically what you're just talking about, I think that was subconscious for me in the sense that I made a note to myself that the Mo was driven by love and regret. You know, he was li driven by the love of his family, but the regret that he hadn't been the father that he could have been. And I think Sam was also driven by love and regret. And Al was driven by love and regret. And all of us are driven by love and regret. Uh, you know, <laughs> things that we've, we love and, and our regrets that we haven't cherished them or taken care of them the way we should. So to me, themes like that are just kind of universal. And I think if you look at, at least from my writing, if you look at anything that I've written, it's always in there. It's like generic to my process. It's got to have those elements. And, and there's only so many basic emotions that people have. So if you look at everything, you kind of break them down that way. But I do see the parallels between Sam and, and Mo. And I think that's why Sam was sort of tickled by him. And, you know, a lot of episodes, you didn't get a, that strong a sense that Sam really liked the person that he was dealing with. And I think in, in this episode, you got a sense he really kind of, he could have stayed there for a while, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. and hung out with this guy and maybe had a relationship with this man, that, <laughs> uh, a friendship. The thing is that this guy was working in a time where he didn't have the technology and Sam was working in a time when he did, but they both made similar mistakes and they both were sort of lonely because of it. So, um, yeah, I think anything that works organically, you can come back later and find all kinds of things that you didn't really see when you were writing it or when you watched it maybe the first time and you start to make these connections. And I think that's just storytelling. Perhaps just following on from that, um, I mean, I noticed Mo, as as you both just discussed, Mo is a, a dreamer and a bit of an oddball. And that kind of role in drama quite often goes to younger characters who are trying to break the status quo and, and do something different to the older generation. By having an older character play that kind of role, were you trying to say something intentionally about the older generation or was that just something that, that came naturally um, because of the other elements? I like writing for older actors. You know, one of the first things I ever wrote that got shot was a two-hour uh, movie and the was starred uh, Ozzie Davis and Cicely Tyson. I liked writing older people. I, even as a kid, I was connected to my grandparents. I liked older people. I thought older people were interesting. So, And you're going to get, you know, it's kind of a cheat, but you're going to get a better actor, in my opinion, if you write an older character, because you're going to get to go find 
Ed Asner, or you're going to find Richard Hurd. You know, there's a lot of these really good actors that get to that age and nobody wants them. Nobody writes for them. Nobody, you know, <laughs> they're not guys that are on anybody's lists. And then when they get a chance, you give them that opportunity. They're so invested in it. And that was Richard, you know, I mean, I've said it a couple of times. It's Richard's enthusiasm for the character that made this whole thing work. It could have just fallen flat in so many places, but it was his belief in my words and his support and his enthusiasm that made everything elevated. And, and, it, and that's where it can fall apart. You know, I mean, the same script can be okay or it can be really good depending on who's out there interpreting it. So I always found if I could write to a actor with a, some experience, it was going to end up being a better episode. So there was that. And then it just happened to work for this character that he was, you know, an older man. And I really liked the character a lot. You know, there's not a lot of the, there's a few of the characters that I wrote that, that kind of stuck in my head. And I wondered, you know, about them. But th this one was one of my favorites. And he was definitely one of my favorite actors that, that I got to play with while we were doing this. It's such a, a meaty role for him, and he got to do a lot of unusual things. I particularly love the scene where Moe jumps out of a window in slow motion, <laughs> and the, the, visual, <laughs> dicey, the huh? visual of him running across the lawn wearing this triangle hat, and it, it was such a serious scene, but such a, a ludicrous visual. I just loved that. I love the way he just scuttles with, away with that hat on. It's not even a proper run. And the way he looks back. It, yeah. it, it's, it's very funny. And the dinner scene to me, too, mm. was another chance where we got to see, OK, this guy's got crazy ideas. I mean, the upside down turkey that that happened to me in college. That was my roommate's girlfriend. Really? You know, didn't know how to make turkey. Oh, that's so good tonight. She, and she made it upside down and we ate it. And it was great. It was like, oh, this is so it, everything went to the to the meat. It worked perfectly. So. I always had that in my <laughs> pocket. I always remembered that was something we all laughed about. So this was like a perfect moment because not only was it, did it seem like something a lunatic would do, it actually <laughs> paid off. The guy went, this is the best meal I've had, you know? So <laughs> it, it was crazy, but was it crazy? You know, and that was the whole question with the character. Okay. He's crazy. Is he crazy? Maybe he's not crazy. Maybe he's way beyond everybody else, you know? So that was the fun with the character was like walking the tightrope of letting him be eccentric, but making sure that at the end of the day, it all had a place in reality that made sense. You know, like, okay, I can look back at everything this guy's done and say it was the right thing to do. And then there's the comment on how disposable older people are and I wasn't that old when I wrote that episode, but, you know, I've just turned 60. So how disposable people are in not just the world, but in show business specifically. I mean, you hit 50 as a writer in television and it's like, what, what's the movie where the red light goes off, where the red light goes off on your hand and it's like, <laughs> kill this person. You know, they're, they're As Logan's run. Yeah, yep. they're, they're finished. <laughs> this guy's done. Uh, put him in the corral. So, um, so that, that I, I'm sure there was some subtle comment about that too, but, um, uh, yeah, it just worked out. You know, it was one of those episodes mm. where at the end of the day you went, all right, then I did my job and I'm real happy with it. Because so many times you you aren't happy with it. You know, you, you see something and you might be happy with a moment or maybe a speech or something, but then you see so many places where it fell down 
And this episode, Michael Switzer, I thought did a great job directing the episode and, um, and it just didn't fall down in any place that I could, maybe the run that you mentioned across the field. <laughs> no, I loved it as it was. It shouldn't have been any different. <laughs> yeah, it was fun. You know, I remember I have a real uh, vivid memory of in those days, the first couple years, we used to go and watch the finished episodes in this movie theater at Universal. And so you'd go and watch your episode on a big screen and it was fun. It would always be just the writers and Don and maybe the editor and, and we'd all go down and, and watch it. And sometimes it was painful, you know, sometimes you just watch Don and uh, you just knew he hated what was going on. And this one, just everybody was so buoyant and like happy after the episode was over. I was just, I remember that day really specifically of being like, all right, I can take a breath. I know they're not going to fire me today. <laughs> I miss those guys. And I learned a lot from Rupenthal and Paul Brown and, and Don, Don, you know, I went into Don after I wrote my first episode and he called me in his office and he said, all right, we need to talk about transitions. And I said, what's a transition? And he just looked at me like, who have I hired? You know? And he said, <laughs> you need to come up with unique ways to get in and out of scenes. And I was like, Oh, okay. You just told me that. So then like my next three episodes were nothing but like really hot, <laughs> fancy transitions. He taught me how to be a writer, you know? So that was like going to school for me uh, there the first couple of years. And, um, and it's, and it's hard when the first job you get is the best job you ever have, you know? Like I did it for another 20 years after that and never, never had the fun or the satisfaction that I had when I was doing quantum. So that was kind of sad. I was always chasing that quantum feeling, but I never really mm -hmm. got it again. Well, if you don't mind, I'd like to just ask a question that I'd like to ask a lot of creators because I, I, I just find it a fascinating process, the whole creative process. And you have been alluding this whole time of how well this episode came together in so many unexpected ways and how happy you were with it. But were there any aspects that didn't come together the way you'd hoped? Was was there anything that you, you really had in mind that, that just never materialized on screen for this one? Just the train thing always bugged me. And even when I saw it again, I was like, why is this old man chasing a train? I just don't, <laughs> I just don't understand it. You know? it. It never made sense to me. But, um, but that was the only element I think of this, that episode that really annoyed me. I mean, I got everything that I wanted to get away with. And no, I, this episode for me was the one that I thought if I could make them all that cool and that smart, you know, I think the episode was smart. Um, not everything I wrote was smart. Sometimes it was like heartfelt, but technically it wasn't smart storytelling in some places. This one I thought was like, it was like it sh needed to be written and I just got the chance to be the guy that wrote it. It would have been written by somebody else on this show. It, that episode had to be made, I think. Like, for instance, Blood Moon did not have to be made. <laughs> <laughs> I disagree. I'm so glad you mentioned Blood Moon. I wasn't going to. No, it, it should not have been made. And I should not have written that episode the way I wrote it. You know, but this one I felt completely the opposite of. I felt like this one was just channeled through me, you know, the, the ones like blood moon, those were work. Those I earned every nickel they paid me on that one. But <laughs> this, this one was just like, gosh, I should have paid somebody because it was so much fun to do. You know, it was fun to, mm. to create this. So, but it I, shows. I that everybody has their own opinions about things. And some people I'm sure 
liked Blood Moon. I, I, I just, we should probably do a podcast about that episode. When we reach that uh, season five, we're going to call you back. All right, guys. Um, I, uh, Tommy, I, you've been so generous with your time. Allison, Matt, any any final thoughts that you have about Future Boy? Um, I think that it was a great message in the end in this episode in that uh, Mo didn't really time travel, but he was still able to fix things now. And that was, I think, important. He didn't have to do that. He just had to fix his life as it was. You really could say that he fixed his own problem by initiating the comment to Sam as a young boy. You know what I mean? That he was the engineer of his own success. Or was he? Was Sam the engineer of his success? That's what I think is beautiful about the episode is that it is one of those uh, Rubik's Cube kind of things where any way you turn it, it can kind of make sense, you know? It's the perfect circle. Yeah, it is. For me, it is. As perfect as my tiny brain is going to get. Yeah, I mean, I think there's so many moments in this episode that touch me in a a really personal way and always um, reduce me to tears every viewing. And that's only possible because it's offset with so much really, really great humour. And it flip-flops between the two so quickly. It's it's a very smooth piece of writing, but Tommy, I think you've, you've been very kind to the rest of the creators behind the scenes. It is one of those episodes where Richard and Scott and and the direction and everything all kind of pulls together and, and yeah, cre- creates this episode that looks so effortless and so easy and hits all these emotional notes. Yeah, it's a team. It's a team effort on that one for sure. And and my only, you know, my memories of the show are my memories are different than maybe you guys. My my memories are just the people, you know, and of mm-hmm. hanging out with the writers sitting in my office and everybody laying on the floor and us just talking things out and coming to dead ends and just laughing and ridiculous ideas that we had that we could never do and just the camaraderie of that is what I remember. So uh, I think for me, Future Boy was really the apex of my experience at Quantum. So for me, you know, it's, those are my golden days there when I felt like all the cylinders were clicking for me as a writer and a storyteller. And that's, you know, that's what you shoot for all the time. It's like, uh, but it's, but I agree with what you said about the idea that it wouldn't be, as heartfelt if it was hadn't had the humor and the silliness that it has with it too. It, you know, reminds me of a line from one of my favorite movies, Vanilla Sky, where he says, mm. you can't have the sweet without the sour, you know, <laughs> and it, you really can't as a writer, if you write all sweet, it doesn't taste good. And if you write it all sour, it doesn't taste good. But if you can get it in there, a little bit of both, those are the pieces of material that that last because that's, way it life is that's the way the real world is so yeah i'm happy with it and i'm glad we got a chance to talk about it tommy thank you so much for joining us on the quantum leap podcast you've been terrific with your stories and so generous with your time we really appreciate it well thanks it's been fun i like talking about the good ones um (laughs) maybe you'll call me on a different one some other time and we'll we'll have a darker conversation (laughs) (laughs) you hear that everybody blood moon to come blood moon to come i'm so excited thank you so much for for talking to us you've been great thank you yeah it was a lot of fun hey thanks for supporting this the show i mean i know you guys have talked to a lot of people who've done the show and 
And there may be people that like, they think these things are like gone and forgotten, but they're not gone and forgotten for the people who worked on them or the people who loved them. So I appreciate what you guys are doing and um, carry on. All right. And with that, we will carry on. We're going to take a break and we will see you guys on the other side. Mr. Scrubble cleans pots and pans. You don't have to ruin your beautiful hands. Just do this and scrub, 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 so your hands won't stink. I'm Mr. Scrubble, the housewife's new best friend. I should have stayed in radio. This is Debbie Allen, and you are listening to the Quantum Leap Podcast. Oh, that went swimmingly. <laughs> I'm so glad he's, he offered to be on for Blood Moon, because I just, I, I want to know so much about that episode. He's going to have a ball. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> he's going to have a ball talking about that That's one. A, I mean, any of the episodes that I think are not good are guilty pleasures, and uh, you guys know me. I love... I love stuff that's so so bad it's good, and that certainly is. <laughs> Me too, but for different reasons. Yeah, well, in case you guys haven't uh, noticed, we are back, and uh, yeah, the enthusiasm is infectious, isn't it? That guy was just Tommy is so great. Yeah, yeah. And I was I was really thrilled when he said, "Hey, could I come on?" It was like out of the blue. It was like what? Oh, oh okay. Yeah, we didn't know until <laughs> after we'd finished recording the other one. They're like, "Hey, Tommy Thompson uh, wants to be on the show as a co-host." You're like, what? Yeah. All right. <laughs> Definitely. He was so chatty and open. I had like a dozen questions lined up, and as he was talking, I was just taking them off, going, "Yep, all right. He's covered that. He's covered that." Yeah. Well, are are we still talking about the episode a little bit, or we're we're moving on? Yeah, if you guys want to, sure. I gotta. I'm gonna tell you my my dirty secret with this episode. Ooh, what's your dirty secret? Um, I love this episode, and to me, it is such quintessential quantum leap. It is so mm-hmm. good on just about every level that I didn't have very many observations. And I was actually relieved that Tommy was coming on because I knew <laughs> that he would be much more interesting in this instance than I could ever be. I mean, <laughs> in every instance, I got to believe. But uh, And I was just happy that he remembered so much of the process and so much of the questions that I always have as a writer in how these things come together. And you can see it on screen. That serendipity is there, just the way everything gelled, the way he talked about. But if you guys, by all means, if you have other observations about Future Boy, let's let's talk about them. There was just some things that maybe uh, I wanted to bring up that weren't necessarily pertaining to Tommy. For instance, one of the scenes I really loved uh, was Al showing up in the normal suit. Uh, and Sam yeah. <laughs> genuinely thinks someone has died. <laughs> like, yeah. like Scott Bakula just sold that scene. It would not be nearly as funny if if he'd been sarcastic about it. Like he's so earnest. Like, did, did someone die? And I think that there's sort of a debate if, like, in the future or the the Quantum Leap 1999 future. If everyone dresses like that, or if Al just has this crazy fashion sense, and this at least proves that that normal suits are are still a thing then. So maybe he is just sort of crazy. Yeah, I I mean, no, no spoilers, but there is obviously an episode coming up that sort of implies fashions are a little off the wall in the future. It's so confusing. It's re- it really is. <laughs> and I always I always saw Al as the extreme end of the spectrum. So he is yes. an outlier when it comes to fashion, but 
even though he's fashion forward, he's not an anachronism in his own time. Yeah. That's the way I see it. Yeah. Did I did I spoil anything by saying Sam missed his dad's funeral? Maybe that hasn't come up yet. No, that's that's come up in No, that's, uh, when, that's when was up. that first brought up? I gotta think the leap home. I wanna say the okay. leap home, yeah. We've All right. that. I wasn't sure, but that was something that I, I felt was a, a parallel. Yeah, well spotted. Yeah, definitely. Allison, I did not notice that at all. And I think that is a brilliant parallel to draw because making Mo and Sam alike on such fundamental levels work subconsciously. But I didn't even realize it until you pointed it out. And then it's like, well, duh, yeah. But no, it's 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 kind of brilliant. In another way that this episode gets to you on a level that you're not even aware of, except you're aware of it. One thing I'd just say about the the father's funeral thing it's first mentioned in the draft script of the pilot, but it didn't make it through to the right. pilot. Now, I don't know if it's actually mentioned on screen, because I know you, like me, like reading draft scripts. Are we both just remembering it from that? Maybe. The really prominent time it was mentioned, I remember, is from a season five episode, so that's later. But I thought maybe it had come up before. Mm, yeah. Did you guys think... Uh, this is just a headcanon thing, because I, I don't think that uh, that was something in, in their minds when they were making it. But do you think that Sam maybe did have an ulterior motive for traveling through time? Hmm. I, you know, now that you mention it, if, if you're going to put that parallel with Mo up there, was Mo's, was it really ulterior, his motive? I mean, it was a motive. When you say ulterior, I think nefarious. Well, Sam, well, Sam certainly, they they present it like he wants to travel through time and and to have this new frontier and and reinvent the wheel and and he's this genius and they want to observe but what if he wanted to travel through time to change something or maybe in his mind he thought you know i've made a lot of mistakes uh, what if i could go back and fix it what if i could be a better son or a brother or or whatever i i have always thought those two leaps in the leap home parts 1 and 2 were effectively what had driven sam to want to time travel, his father's death and his brother's death. And I think that's alluded to in one of the novels as well, but I've, I've always felt that was some kind of personal driving force. I think Prelude mentions it. Yeah, I think they, they mentioned specifically his brother being one of the motivating factors. But, but let's, let's be clear here. Uh, because we don't really know what the parameters of Quantum Leap were before it went a little caca, it was just as much a surprise to them that Sam had to affect a change in somebody's life in order to leap out and hopefully leap home. So while those might have been motivations that, you know, he, he lost his brother, he missed his dad's funeral, there's nothing that ever says he was intending to change any of that. Mm. Uh, was he supposed to just go back as an observer? We don't know what the original parameters of Project Quantum Leap were supposed to be. I was always confused by that. I was confused because, yeah, they always say he it was meant to be to observe, but Al is the designated observer, and they don't seem surprised that he has arrived there. Maybe they're surprised that he's taken someone else's place. It, it's not really clear exactly what originally he was supposed to be doing. Because if, if he was supposed to physically go there, then there's no way that you couldn't change something, even in minute ways. Yeah, and that's absolutely right. I mean, and then you have the, the dead moth, this distant sound of thunder scenario on your hands. And it's just like the, the very <laughs> fact that he is there as 
already altered the future irrevocably. Yeah. Um, again, who knows if they got into that philosophically or, or what? And that's why I always wondered if maybe he was supposed to leap into someone because that way technically he's he's occupying a space that's already been occupied. And he could just sort of go through the routine of that person and maybe not wreck the timeline in any significant way. But who knows? I mean, again, it, it all depends on what you think Quantum Leap was originally supposed to accomplish. Yeah. And the novel probably does play with that a little bit. And it's quite clear that the idea is that he or, or that a team of them, um, there's a few names that are mentioned, including Sam and Al, um, are going to go back and observe. And uh, yeah, it's the actual leaping part is not um, is not in the original plan. But that's a novel written after the series had finished. So how much... Um, how much weight you put in that is is a different matter. I, I love how deep the novels go into these things because, yeah. like, they're not necessarily things I would want to see on the show, but, like, as a novel, I love digging into those things. Like, yeah. I love that they come up with an origin for everything. I love that there's an <laughs> yeah. origin for the little white streak in Sam's hair. Like, they're like, no, no, yep. there's a reason for this. Let's I get wrote into that this. into my book, too. <laughs> <laughs> so good. It's a little bit obsessive, but it's fun when you, you know, part of the part of the appeal of writing a Quantum Leap novel, especially if you're a fan, is to indulge your fanishness. So I think that yeah. a lot of those things you can read and enjoy them on their own merits because you don't have to agree with this author's interpretation. But if they posit something that's at least entertaining, even if you don't agree with it, it's still satisfying. Quantum Leap is such a moldable show. It's unclear about a lot of things in a way that you can interpret it however you like. And that's really where it becomes fun, trying to figure out how these things could have worked or what were the, the thoughts behind this. And uh, that's it's really fun for me. I've always said when, when people ask me about, the people that haven't read the novels ask me about them, I, I point out the fact that the amount of time um, Al spent as a POW changes between MIA and The Leap Home Part 2 and one of the best novels just seems to be entirely based around that inconsistency. Oh, yeah. Pulitzer is just is a whole novel <laughs> based around a, a blooper. That, well, um, that, that's heartbreaking too when you get into that. When you, when you get into the really nitty gritty of the show some of it becomes just tragic when you think about it. <laughs> but it turns out to be a really good novel. Oh yeah, that's, so, um, that's ostensibly yeah. the best novel. Yeah, shout out to Elizabeth Storm. She is by far, and I just say this anecdotally but in speaking to everyone, she is by far the most popular quantum leap author so it's it's nice that we we're able to to still speak about the great work that she did you know mm -hmm. i think we've gone off track a little is there anything else about captain galaxy that that we didn't cover i th i think maybe we did no actually i had one more thing all right yeah uh allison yeah hold forth and one more thing um <laughs> <laughs> is mo dangerous because yes. he does yes. a lot of things yeah. Like, he tries to jump the train. Uh, he crashes his car because he's daydreaming. He almost burns his house down. So really, isn't there some credence to what his daughter wants? To, shouldn't he be committed because he is dangerous to, to himself and others? Yeah, and the, the way the episode ends with essentially her looking after him is the only way it could end. Mm -hmm. Because the, the whole goal of, oh, just, just stop him from being committed... Um, yeah, like you say, he's bound to get into trouble sooner or later. He needs someone looking after him. But what Sam and Al don't see throughout the whole episode is that that, that someone maybe should be family. 
Yeah, but I Sam says to her specifically at the dinner, "Why are you going to do this?" And it was one of the um, because show moments in the episode, and she even alludes to it. She says, "I don't even know why I'm telling you all this, but because the audience <laughs> needs the plot and my background and the backstory, I'm going to tell you all this." It struck me as her being angry. And Sam actually calls her on it saying, you know, you might be able to see a different way if you stop feeling sorry for yourself. And every time I saw that scene, I must have watched the show at least three times before we got on mic here. That is a dangerous way to approach this because if you are going to try to get somebody into your confidence to point out one of their chief flaws and to say, you're just feeling sorry for yourself, you need to get over it. I would have said, F you. Who the hell are you, Kenny, Kenny, whatever, Kenny Spencer or whatever his name is? (laughs) You don't know me. You don't know my father's life. And how dare you say, I feel sorry for myself. It was an odd writing choice. It was a risky writing choice. It, It sort of works in the moment, but it sort of takes me out of the moment. And it seemed the only somewhat out of character bit for Sam. I don't think that he would be as directly abrasive. I think he would have, he would have found another way. I think if the uh, if the leap hadn't essentially been about him fixing this relationship between Mo and his daughter, the plot would have been approached a lot differently. Because if you're just going to go like you know someone who's eccentric shouldn't be committed when he is dangerous, um, and uh, <laughs> you know when you go into that like if there is nothing to be fixed, uh, if there is no relationship there. Uh, I don't think she would really be obligated to take care of him, which isn't to say that, you know, someone is disposable, you know, you just send him to an asylum or something. But if it was just that, I would see where she's coming from. Um, but I think because he was supposed to fix their their relationship and because there was something there and she could take care of him, it all ended up working out in the end in, in a better way uh, for both of them. Oh, by all means. And no, you're right. Undoubtedly, Mo was a danger to himself and to others. He was sweet. He was kooky. He was smart. He was idealistic, but he was still dangerous. Yeah, there was a great visual in this of uh, of Mo and Sam drinking milk together simultaneously, <laughs> yes. and then like wiping away the milk mustaches. I should ask Tommy. I wanted to ask if that stuff was ad libbed or written into the script, and also the Mister Scrubbo dance when Scott tosses the boxes <laughs> as he's turning around. And- it's a good ad. Him just throwing the product. <laughs> They, they had more of that stuff in the script, at least the version I read. I didn't read one as early as, as you, Matt, it doesn't sound like, because where he originally dies in the end. But um, I, I read, there was like a scene, like an extra scene before the dinner where they're like doing each other's ties and stuff like that, and just more of the, the same sort of physical stuff. Yeah, the one that I've got actually has the, the current ending. Um, my knowledge of him dying at the end uh, came from a comment that Tommy made on stage back in the 90s. So I've I've not read that version of the script either. Is that the, the suicide version or, or just he died in some other way? No, that's he had a heart attack. Oh, Jesus. Um, <laughs> Gosh. So I... I, I didn't want, because Tommy was in full flow there, and I, I didn't want to ask, but I was wondering if he tried the suicide, and when Don said, no, 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 I thought maybe he tried natural causes then as a midpoint before he then said, all right, okay, let's, let's not kill him. I wish that they had gone with 
the suicide explanation. Not that he would die in the end. Oh, you're so dark. It is really dark, but I wish that they had gone with that because it it makes more sense story-wise to me than than he just jumps a train or he does all of these yeah. these crazy things. Like it it really does fit in with the fact that he is someone who is he really just doesn't like how his life turned out. Like he wants to fix his mistakes and if he can't fix them, then that's the road that he goes down. Well, that's actually, that's that's an important distinction because, yeah, what we're talking about here is Sam was there to prevent him from killing himself. And then because of Don's influence, that changed to Sam was there to stop him from jumping the train. What Tommy had said back in the 90s was that the script actually ended with Mo dying of a heart attack. That's a stone cold bummer, though. Which kind of suggests that... He he couldn't. So so Sam saves him from a suicide, and then he ends up uh, dying of a heart attack. Oh, so both of them were in that version then of that script. That's what I'm guessing. But, so I like the the inevitability of it, though. But but I don't know if that. Yeah. What did he leap for then? I guess to fix his life. I guess I guess the point wasn't to to save his life, but rather fix his his relationship with his daughter. Yeah, he, it might have just given him one last chance to have that discussion with his daughter that he had in the finished episode um, just before dying. And you guys, are, you're also thinking about that part from just Mo's point of view. Um, it could also be that Sam was there to help give the daughter closure and to put this exactly. behind her as well. Yeah. Irene, yeah. right? Yeah. So, yeah. But you tell me how it's any less ghastly that a 60-something-year-old man goes to hop a freight train and gets sucked under and gets cut in half by, you know, <laughs> giant metal wheels. It's just that you say didn't... that he died hopping a train. Well, what do you think that entails? That entails getting hit by a train. You know, that's not, he's not even the first old person on the show to get hit by a train. <laughs> <laughs> they had fun, they, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to almost swear. They had Ms. Melanie gets hit by a train. What is the, what is this theme with with older people getting run down by trains in this you show. You know the funny thing is you're thinking of Miss, Miss Melanie. I was thinking about the kid in um the so was it so help me God? No, uh, no the, it, the, it, the other it one. It was leap of faith. Leap of faith. Well, it was the but that wasn't an old person. But yeah, this is the third person. No, it was it was an old person tra- holding the guy down on the tracks. Oh right, because the priest got killed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, something like that. They both. So what? It, why they did both this died. Keep I think somebody died in train yards. That's so, what we know. You know what? What we've learned is that elderly people should just stay away from trains. No, I think trains in quantum yeah. leap. Because also think of honeymoon express. Honeymoon Express is one whole (laughs) big disaster on a train. Oh my god! I just keep thinking of this is a little off topic, very off topic. But there was a a, there was a Bonanza movie that Dean Stockwell was in where he gets run over by a train in the end, (laughs) and there's this like dummy sucked in, run over by the train. Oh, we have to get video of that and put it on the website. That would be priceless. (laughs) Oh, I got I got pictures of that Sliders episode with the the um. Like a Captain Galaxy outfit, so I can I can send that you guys this way if you want to see them. Oh, you definitely definitely have to send us that. Yeah, I you posted about that a while back, and I I checked it out because of course I've got sliders, and uh, yeah, I was like, my God, how did I not spot that? It's, uh... <laughs> sliders, I think a couple times they had they had reused costumes a couple times because there was the sliders where someone is wearing one of Al's suits as well. 
Well, Sliders was on a budget of like 10 bucks an episode, right? Yeah, yeah. this was probably like later on. I think this was during like their last couple seasons when it was pretty yeah. dire. This is even when <laughs> when it, when Jerry O'Connell wasn't even there anymore, right? Yes. Yeah, oh man, that last sudden, season. Rembrandt became the star of the show. I love Rembrandt. <laughs> I know, I love him though. too, but I mean, talk about the premise just going completely out the window. It's, yeah, yeah. He, he was meant to be the comic relief, not the lead. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Good actor though anyway we could do a whole other podcast mm. about sliders too that would be fun or maybe it would <laughs> which I know, that one show will was... be the slide home i always <laughs> i always thought that sliders was trying to capitalize on quantum leap and i think they became yeah. their own thing but they had like um they had a character whose last name was beckett even so i felt like they were like how do yeah. we do this but our own kind of spin how do we do these people jump from a, a different genre or different plot every episode. How do we do this? Well, they even they even in their saga cell went out of their way to say, same people, different reality. See, we're not Quantum Leap. <laughs> you might think we're Quantum Leap, but no, 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 we're the same people, different reality. Yeah, they even had like Jerry O'Connell's character was like a kind of a genius that was sort of, you know, your everyman mm-hmm. genius like, uh, like Sam Beckett. Very yeah, similar. Yeah. Your studly everyman triathlete genius. Yeah, because exactly. <laughs> he kept his shirt on a little more. A little did, more. Yeah, not as much Jerry O'Connell fan service going on. They were more interested <laughs> no. in Carrie Wurr fan service. And those were in later yes. seasons. That's right. Carrie Wurr came on. I was surprised that she was able to keep her top on long enough to be on a network show at that point because I'd only ever seen her on like Skinamax. Where where was the John Reese Davies fan service? <laughs> I think that was in Lord of the Rings. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> in the name of the king, I think maybe that was. Oh, my goodness. Anyway, uh, anything else about Future Boy? Are we are we good with this? I love I love our tangents. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if we have any final thoughts here, but uh, I thought this was a, a classic episode. It, it had it is a good one to start people with. Just say this is what Quantum Leap is about. It's it's great. I never thought of that, but you're right. That's if if no one's ever seen an episode of Quantum Leap, this not only gives you the heart, the humor, and sort of the spirit of the show, it also gives you some of the the geeky sci-fi mythology of the show. So it is a perfect entry point. Isn't that funny? Like a mid season three episode can serve as someone's perfect entry into this broader universe. Well, it stands by itself, and it also has uh, lots of great meaty stuff for the lore of the show so if you are familiar with the show you get a lot from it but you know but think about it too because sam even goes out of his way to explain i'm a time traveling scientist standing here talking to a hologram like as if you've never mm-hmm. seen this show before i'm even going to explain this a little bit to you that's but it all oh, makes wow, sense awesome. like it, yeah. it all comes up naturally like it never feels like they're like as you know audience yeah. <laughs> but i mean i never even considered it it's another brilliant observation by allison pregler oh, thank you just be careful. If you're going to use this as an entry point for someone, it has to be someone that's willing to stick it out for at least the first 10 minutes. Because uh, you sit someone down who watches the first few minutes and says, hang on, this is about a guy dressed in tinfoil. Um, th- this this, this, is not for me. Well, if you didn't know anything about Quantum Leap, yeah, for sure it would be very confusing. Yeah. I'd, I'd like to go back to something, can we? Just before sure. we end up, because Matt, um, because. I, I took a sneak peek at some of the notes that you wrote down. And you haven't really gotten into this, but yeah, didn't you you alluded to the fact that you hated this episode when you first saw it? So yeah. dish. So what? <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't remember much about it because I was I was probably about eleven or twelve. But when I started properly getting into the show a couple of years later, 
And I kind of, I tried to remember the episodes that I'd seen. And I remember this episode as just this stupid <laughs> one where he he was Future Boy and it was silly and not very funny. And it had all this silly sci-fi stuff in, which was kind of taking the piss out of all the sci-fi shows that I really like. And how dare it do that? Yeah, I completely missed the point as a kid. I totally missed the point of the episode. And then I saw it again, maybe late 90s. I I was late teens. Um, I saw it on a repeat and went, oh, that's what the episode's about. Now I understand. When I first saw the episode, I didn't like it as much as I did later. Um, And it wasn't that uh, I disliked it. I think it was because it was sometimes when you come out from an episode uh, into the the leap out at the end, there's this really jarring tonal shift. And uh, it was right after eight and a half months, which is one of my favorite episodes. And then it ends and it all of a sudden... Sam's in a goofy tinfoil costume in a spaceship, and you think, oh, okay, this is just going to be like a goofy episode about a a 50s serial. And so I I think maybe that kind of Mm -hmm. painted what I I thought of the episode at first, and then when there's repeat viewings, you realize like how smartly written it is. Mm. Well, and and they do that again this time around, because over the course of the episode, you realise, yes, this is a meaningful episode, it's trying to say something, and it's got a good dramatic closure... And then he leaps out into a male stripper. And (laughs) you're just like, oh, Oh, my God, I'm not going to bother watching next week. Well, you know what? That's not the worst tonal shift that they ever had. Certainly, There there are quite a few jarring ones. We might have to break the timeline to talk about those. But let's keep that, you know, the leap. That could be an interesting segment to the show. The leap out where you are as opposed to where you're going. And it's almost inevitable that you're going to have those juxtapositions that just don't work. Well, it's sort of um, a product of how television is aired in that um, a lot of times when shows like this, where they're very episodic, uh, the episode order is shuffled around. And a lot of Mm -hmm. times networks are like, okay, well, we think this is stronger, so let's put this here, whatever. And a lot of times it's like, okay, this was a really heavy episode, so we need to do like a comedy afterwards to kind of lift people's spirits. And there's this complete tonal shift that you're not exactly ready for. No, absolutely. And I know that I've been at a loss in things that I want to talk about about this episode because it came together so well. But another really, it's it's a personal thing. It's, you know, me and my radios. I really loved the live TV setting of this episode because it was the closest we ever came. I always thought that Sam should have leapt live onto a radio show while it was in progress. And just to go into that whole era of live radio. And I know in the 50s it was dying, but there were still plenty of shows on the air that were weekly dramas that were done live or weekly comedies or whatever. And I always wanted them to explore that world a little bit. They never did, of course, but Future Boy came as close as Quantum Leap ever got. So I always liked it for that as well. That was a fun uh, setting, and uh, it was great to be able to see like him looking at himself on the television, kind of mm. waving at himself, yeah. and, yeah. and yeah. Scott Bakula pretending not to be able to act. That's really fun. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> Holy cats! Yeah. Captain Ga- <laughs> he starts reading Moe's dialogue. Yeah, that's yeah. Great. Yeah. yeah, just little things like that. And speaking of Moe's dialogue, perfect segue, Allison. We promised this to you at the top of the show, and we have this interview with Mr. Moe Stein himself, Richard Hurd. 
Guys, can you believe it? Yeah, it's amazing. I'm excited to hear it. I know he he talked for a long time and he had a lot of stuff to say, so I, I'm really excited to, to hear it. Yeah, I bet he's got a lot of really good memories. Yeah, he does. And uh, we are bringing those to you right now. So here is our interview with Captain Galaxy, Mr. Richard Hurd. Welcome to the Quantum Leap Podcast, Richard. How are you? I'm fine. I'm uh, having a a good day. I'm uh, I do a bit of a. Uh, I'm, I was just assembling something. I, I'm I also work in oil and acrylic, and I've been working with uh, Harley Davidson parts. <laughs> and I've been making I've been making I make lamps out of uh, musical instruments. And Harley Davidson uh, leftovers. I do assemblages and lamps with Harley Davidson. And if you went on to my official uh, Facebook, you would see that. Or if you went on to my website, you would see a lot of my paintings. And uh, you would also now see a lot of the lamps. So I've been doing an assemblage out there. I'm putting together a a new uh, Harley Davidson lamp to submit to a collage show. So uh, I keep myself busy doing that. And, you know, it's it's wonderful. We just got back. My wife and I just got back from Kentucky. Uh, it was very, very cold out there, Chris, very cold. And we uh, made a film called The Silent Natural, which was just an astounding movie. It's coming out next spring around spring training. It's a baseball movie. And it's about the first deaf professional baseball player. And his name was William Hoy, H-O-Y. He had a lifetime average of 298. And he was instrumental in bringing in a lot of the signals that you see on baseball today. But it was a very unusual movie, and we were very fortunate to be part of it. Well, I'd love to hear more about that. But before we go into the future, do you mind if I bring us back to the past a little bit and talk about Quantum Leap? Tommy Thompson, that's why, you know, you... You know, the, you remember the, the series Sequest uh, with Roy Sider? Yeah, of course. He he ran that for a while, didn't he? Well, yeah. he was very involved with that. I think he did the pilot, and he recommended me for the uh, part of uh, Admiral Noyce. I mean, you know, Tommy Thompson's a great guy, and my favorite play when I, I did it with my wife was at, uh, the, the Death of a Salesman. My favorite film was a film that didn't get a lot of uh, attention, but I, I really enjoyed working with Norman Jewish and then so many people, was Fist with uh, Sylvester Stallone. And my favorite television appearance was on Quantum Leap. Okay. Uh, that, that's the way it goes with me. And Tommy, um, you know, was an important part of that, having written it, and um, also you know, moving forward into becoming a producer, et cetera, et cetera. Quantum Leap, as I said, was my, I tried to get that, um, the, uh, I wanted the Quantum Leap outfit, but uh, Don Don (laughs) Belisario, his son got that. That's what I wanted. I wanted, yeah. Uh, What I did get, though, there were two, um, oh, triangle hats. Yes, yes. And the, um, we're just cleaning out the uh, garage right now, and I came across uh, my triangle hat. And uh, I can give you my um, 
uh, my e my email later. And if anyone's interested in uh, purchasing that, they're <laughs> welcome to it. There's, it's a beautiful thing, as you may remember. I just and saw the episode. Yes. Yeah. 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 It's it's the triangle hat that I wore, and it's the original. There are only two of them. I don't know who had, I think probably Don Belisario's son who's all grown up now and produces his own show. Okay, yeah, well, speaking speaking of that triangle hat, you're talking, of course, about your role as Mo Stein, and you got to appear on Quantum Leap not once, but twice. First is Mo, also known as Captain Galaxy, in the episode Future Boy, and then as Ziggy in the series finale Mirror, Mirror Image. Yeah, I'd like to talk about both appearances, but let's start with Future Boy. And uh, if you can just tell me how you got the role as Mo Stein and what it was like to be on set with Scott and Dean. Obviously, you already have a ton of stories. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, I was in town over in Hollywood doing something. And my wife called me and she said, you've got to get right over to Universal or whatever. Um, casting this part on Quantum Leap. And I went over and I only had one chance to look at it. And I, I really... To be perfectly honest with you, it's it's the it's the, it's the most real part I ever played. Even though he was kind of had a few oddities about him, but in the sense of the closest human being, regular, easygoing guy with the children's show, it was just wonderful. I got out there and I read a couple of times, and they cast me on the spot, and they sent me to wardrobe right away because they had been having trouble casting that role, and. Um, you know, we we got along, uh, you know, Dean and Scott, we got along very, very well. And it was just a pleasure doing that show. And something you may not know, um, there's a producer out there, first name Jonathan, I can't recall it, but he watched it, he caught it, and he called me uh, oh, about three weeks later. He wanted to talk to me about, he had already talked to Don about making a series uh, about me. You know, when I go back to uh, Milwaukee with my daughter and uh, yeah, there was talk about making a series, of, uh, you know, starring uh, Captain Galaxy uh, to go back to Milwaukee with his daughter. Uh, I can't remember who played a girl by the name of Deborah. And uh, he brought me in a few times. And I thought that'd be great because I really would have liked to do something like that. As a matter of fact, what I would like to have done is actually pursue the point we're not just being a regular guy back there because the, you, you know the whole story you may recall is about he becomes a superstar uh, and he's building the time machine in the basement so that he can go back in time and get terrible reviews so he would not become a superstar because he missed the whole as you know anybody who works all the time and in film or on the stage, they really don't get to know their family. So the purpose of that was to go back in the time, get bad reviews, and uh, be able to spend time with his wife and children, which was just a, a marvelous premise. And I had known Don from years before, and um, I met Don first in New York when he was writing commercials. And I did a... Um, I did a beer commercial for him down in New Orleans. We got to know each other. And this was the first time we actually worked together. But it, it was, um, I miss it. I miss the part. I'm, and I miss being part of that particular time and, uh, when they were doing those quantum leaps. It was a very, very personal thing to me, even though I didn't get the Captain Galaxy outfit. 
I still have <laughs> the triangle hat. Well, it's amazing that they were thinking about doing a Mostine spinoff. I think that's news here on the Quantum Leap podcast. I don't know if you've told that story elsewhere, but I've certainly never heard it. And uh, it's, it's, it's amazing to think the possibility, right? Oh, yeah. And this guy was, uh, he was an actor before Jonathan. Oh, Jonathan Banks, B-A-N-K-S. Okay. Yeah. Well, it's become a big thing. You know, I also, we played, uh, I played with the Enterprise Blues Band, which were five or six of us from Star Trek. I mm. did, um, I did uh, Voyager. I did Next Generation. We got together. We had a band and they took us all over the, all over the world, as a matter of fact, playing at all these various conventions and we did, the band played at, um, I think it was the last Quantum Leap convention. Oh, really? Um, you know, we played, and uh, there was a signing show and the whole thing, but the band played there. And it was an opportunity to get back together with uh, not only the producers and the creators. I didn't see Tommy there. Uh, it, it, it's, it's, um, it's a time in my life that... Uh, you know, uh, I, I really enjoyed being part of something like that. It was a very real, because as you know, it, I, I used to do a lot of very light comedy, and after I, I did uh, China Syndrome, I started getting all of the power parts, and gotcha. I played, um, you know, General Omar Bradley and General This and Heads of Corporations, and that brought me back to, you know, being a nice regular guy and <laughs> then on with the comedy comedy with two years on uh, Seinfeld. Right. I played a, I enjoyed playing that part too because he was a little off center but he uh, he was just more or less a regular guy that didn't have it all together. I enjoyed doing work. Let, let me ask you, let me get, dig a little bit deeper into that because one thing I did notice about Mo, I mean you played him, it was kind of a combination of like wildly eccentric Yet he was reasonable, and he was always very personable, and that's that regular guy aspect that you're talking about. Was it difficult to find yeah. that line to walk? Uh, did you discuss how kooky Mo should be with Tommy Thompson, who wrote the episode, no, or with the director, no, no. or did you just come uh, no, to that no. naturally? How no. did you How did you figure out how to make Mo kind of nuts, but really down to earth at the same time? Well, he was eccentric. Uh, he was eccentric. Um, and in the, the audition, that's what they saw. Evidently, nobody came in and gave the kind of audition I did because I, I was, I, I was in many instances, I was very childlike in the sense that seeing things and the enjoyment and wanting to go back in time, even though I was certainly bright enough, but lived in great hopes that I could build a time machine. And as a matter of fact, I, I came very close. Yes. <laughs> you, all, you almost leaped. Quantum leap. Right. Yeah. Right. Now I you have know, to, it was a, a lot of discoveries and, um, Scott made a lot of discoveries along with me and, um, they gave me free reign. I mean, um, I just, I, I remember what Scott said when I came on the show and after our first, uh, um, scene, he said, well, now, now we have a show. Oh, that's great. That's yeah, really nice. Because evidently they couldn't, they didn't quite find um, the person that could, it just, well, you know, I've, I've, I've been in the business now um, as a professional actor 65 years. And I, when I look at something, I don't look for eccentricity. I don't look to 
nail a lot of things on a roll. I look at the role and I look at the overall role. I look at the underlying role and I look at the sense and purpose of this man who was uh, not all that kooky, but to many people seemed kooky because he was obsessed with trying to get back to a time where, um, you know, he could spend time with his children who grew up with him. And no one, his daughter came along at the end there. There was a, a great, you know, a great renewal of love. Right. Because there was such a, and many families in America have gone through that. So they could associate with it. Well, I just, getting to sort of that, that truth of the character that you're speaking about, I mean, when you think about it, you were actually playing two characters in the episode, Mo and Captain Galaxy. Did you approach Captain Galaxy as a separate character that you had to play? Well, um, you know, Captain, Captain Galaxy, first of all, it was, you know, uh, I was playing in my, my, own, my own life, but uh, I also had, you know, the children's show. And, um, you know, the whole thing, the whole thing in there about the... Uh, the children's show, but uh, it was just an extension of here's a guy like, God bless him. We lost uh, Chuck McCann recently. And uh, Chuck was a, you know, very nice, pleasant going guy, but he did a lot of, he had a great feeling for children's shows that he did in New York in his early, his early career. And, uh, you know, having three children myself, it was, um, I had, you know, I had a wonderful time doing the the, the children's show, and it, a lot of people you see they get um, they get caught up in day to day life. I think most people walk around with a mask. They hardly ever reveal themselves. They keep their feelings and their emotions tied down because everything that's whirlwind. There's a whirlwind inside your mind, your soul, and your body. And this is a man, Mo who found an opportunity uh, through the show and also as being a day-to-day guy. I mean, you know, when they brought him in, he, he actually became Captain Galaxy. He actually became the man. He didn't start out that way, but he came the, became the man and this great enthusiasm of going back and the enthusiasm with the children, they blended together. It was a blend. There was nothing purposeful. Um, I did not sit down and plan it. It was a natural growth. You know, you have to, um, you go through all this thing about what you learn. And there's a famous uh, Boleslavsky, uh, a, a Russian uh, director and so forth. And he said, once you've studied the whole thing, once you're pretty certain about what you're going to do, comes opening night, throw it all away and go out there and just be that character. And every time I work, I'm the kind of actor who just, I like to become the person I'm playing. I just let it, let it go. Let it come to me. And that's how it came to me. I didn't, you know, I, I, it, myself and Captain Galaxy created each other and we became two people within the body of one Hmm. or the mind of one. Well, speaking of Russians, you uh, evoked the name of a Russian director, but I want to talk about a Russian that you actually played on Quantum Leap. Do you mind if we move on to Mirror Image? You can go, oh, mirror image, that was fun because, um, you know, that bar there, that was actually Don Belisario's father's bar back in Pennsylvania. And he, and he had a lot of his, um, quite a few, I think his brother was there and several other people were there. And he had a, he brought back a lot of the characters from the various shows. 
And he called me long while he was writing that, make sure I was going to be available uh, to play Ziggy. And uh, I think uh, I think James Whitmore Jr. I think he was in the first and the last show. He was a producer and a director. I think he is still active, but he brought people back for specific purposes. Well, let me talk to you about that because. Even though Captain Galaxy is referenced directly in the episode, uh, you played Ziggy Zigovanovich. I can't even say the name. You played Ziggy, and that was such a complete departure from most Stein. So when you when you came, did you? How much did you know going in uh, what the role would entitle and what it would be like? You you said that Don had called you months beforehand to make sure that you would be available because obviously he wanted to bring you back to make you a part of this. Yeah. Yeah. Well, when I did, I, I thought about it, and uh, you know he's he, he's from a coal mining town, coal miner, and I remembered all of the various nations that came to this country to work in coal mines, and all the various accents and backgrounds and so forth and so on, and uh, that's how the accent came. I, I did not work on the accent. Uh, while I was running through it, it just came. It just, it and it, it it was a good fit. Now the accent you got to be careful with an accent because you mustn't let the accent take over the part that you're playing, and you mustn't just be playing an accent. When you're playing an accent, it, you shouldn't even be aware of playing an accent and uh, planned it or try to get all of the accents a hundred percent correct. And I just felt. When I uh, that that was the thing that led me into the character, because I was thinking of the coal miners coming from all over the world and the various nations, and all of a sudden, my God! I said, "My God!" I said, "He he uh, he's first. He's a uh, you know he came from another country, and this and I start. Then all of a sudden, I got this uh, kind of Slavic Slavic sense of the character, and there there was there was a joy." He also had a joy. He wasn't the brightest man in the world. He didn't have a big education, but he seemed to enjoy what he was doing. He enjoyed talking to people uh, all around him. And, uh, you know, he brought that back in there, too, as kind of a backhanded joke because of Ziggy. But he was another very natural guy, but he was just from another place in another country. And uh, I had a wonderful time being being part of that. I, you see, that's the thing about ensemble playing. Um, when you work with a group of actors, either in a play, a film, or television, uh, you have to be a team. You have to be an ensemble. You have to be willing to play and see what adventures you go through. And, and within this uh, rehearsals, you don't have very many, believe me, <laughs> one or two. You get together, you know, with a bunch of people you might never have worked with, and you create these things. But once you hit something, then you get this ensemble. Once you get the ensemble, then the, the, the film or so forth takes care of itself. But everybody has to be willing to join in and not step back. They And that always comes when you work with what I call people that were originally on the stage, that studied that way. And... We're willing to take risks. See, when you're in rehearsal for four weeks in New York for a show off Broadway or on, you have the opportunity to try out your character in various ways. You can try, I always call it, you go through the aria period, you go through this until finally 
you put all the pieces back together again and become the character. And that's what the four-week rehearsal is. The four-week rehearsal is to create an ensemble, something that makes sense, something that people will enjoy because it's coming from one source. And in television, you don't have that kind of liberty. You don't have that kind of time. I come in to do Captain Galaxy. We ran it once or twice and we shot it. You can't come in the next day and say, hey, I have an idea about this. I'd like to go back. They can't do that. It's too expensive. So the only thing you have to really do, like working on Seinfeld, when you work in television, uh, you really should be ready, set to go. Actually, you should be perfect. And hopefully you're playing with actors that have a strong sense of background and have a sensitivity. Maybe an actor leads you in a different direction with his character. Maybe you lead the other one. And finally, all of these individual people that you've never worked with they come together as a whole. And when you have a, a film like that, you have a good film. And that's why Captain Galaxy, you know, Captain Galaxy came very, very close to uh, what about, uh, an Emmy nomination because there was a lot of hoopla about that particular show that Tommy wrote and myself and other people were in. But uh, for one reason or another, it, um, which I, I don't want to go into right now, I know that Don got behind it. He took a whole page in Variety and this and that and so forth and so on. And got a lot of calls from the Emmy people, but it just never happened. You know, even as an ensemble show, which it should have, because they had a great, great ensemble, especially Captain Galaxy. Captain Galaxy, I got a lot of calls. It was a very unique show. And I, I'm just... Um, um, not in an egotistical way. I'm not flattering myself. I just consider it a privilege that I had the opportunity to be, opportunity to be part of a show like that. And Scott Bachner, you, you couldn't work with a better actor because he plays the game. He, he, he's an ensemble. He's got a background as an actor. And he's right there with you. The whole point, it's called being in the moment. And we, you have to get into the moment. Like Captain Galaxy, when he slowly went for this whole thing, he got into the moment with the children's show and he believed every single thing he said. You have to believe it. If you don't believe it, the audience isn't going to believe it. And if the character that you're working across from doesn't believe it, it's not going to work. And a lot of actors, you know, I, I do master classes. And I usually start with, uh, you know, the actors of the drama department. I ask them how many out there want to be movie stars. I get a lot of hands. And then I say, how many want to be actors? Because you have to work to discover who and what is within yourself so that once you look at the text, you know, you'll know what to do. I mean, a lot of young actors today, they want to take the elevator. They don't want to take the stairs. They don't want to do the work. You know, everybody wants to be a movie star. They don't want to study. It's, it's just a shame. It really is. And, uh, there's just not that many. Everything's a revival in New York. And there are a lot of good television shows on now, though. A, a really a, a good slew of them. Yeah, tons. Well, if we can just uh, linger on mirror image, I have one more question. Um, because you're talking about that ensemble atmosphere that you were able to build both in Future Boy and in Mirror Image when you came back. But when... They were shooting Mirror Image. They they knew that it might be the final episode of the show. Was so. 
Was the atmosphere on set any different because of that? Were you guys cognizant that this might be it? For Quantum Leap, anyway. Well, no, because evidently, you know, before, my, as my understanding, you might know better than me, I think the show was canceled four times before. The show was canceled four times. Then they made up their mind to bring it back. We looked at the last show as a place that we were passing through to go somewhere else. And that's why he brought some characters from the other shows. Passing through and... You know, it was kind of left up in the air as though it might be, you know, brought back again. But um, I didn't look at it as, um, uh, because that's not my job as an actor. I played Ziggy, so I didn't look at it as a final show. And, he, you know, because Ziggy wouldn't. But if, when I step back as a, a person or a, an actor, um, I thought, well, maybe they'll bring it back. But if it is a final show, it certainly has a wonderful cast. And it was a privilege to work with everybody. And it was, it was quite different. It was quite different. And I'm, I'm, uh, I'm proud to have had the opportunity to have been a part of uh, Quantum Leap. Well, uh, if you'd like, I'd like to broaden out to some of your other work. I mean, you've had such a long career. Um, so if you don't mind, I'd like to focus on some of your more iconic genre roles. And what immediately came to my mind when I knew I was going to be talking to you was um, the alien overlord John in V, the TV miniseries, because I think that's the first thing I remember seeing you in. And it was such a television mm -hmm. event. Can you tell me yeah. what it was like to work on that? Well, first of all, I got the biggest numbers that NBC ever got. And it was a privilege to work with the creator who was also the director, Ken Johnson. They offered me that role. There's a story that goes with that. And of course, I, 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 I accepted, but I said, I have to check with my production manager first because I was doing a regular job at that time with Bill Shatner on T.J. Hooker. Right. I was on T.J. Hooker. So I spoke to, I never bothered with the agents. I spoke to the production manager because they wanted me on a day that I was working on T.J. Hooker. And I certainly wanted to do V. So I, I spoke to the production manager and he called the production manager for V. And they worked it out. So in one day in the morning, I did my first scene, a long, a long speech, not the one with the, uh, the spaceship, but the, 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 this, a long speech to the world in the morning. And I had my, my wardrobe was actually ready for me. I went right from there over to uh, Warner's and uh, changed into my wardrobe. And after lunch, I did T.J. Hooker. <laughs> and the reason, yeah, that's the way that happened. I, I did uh, V in the morning and T.J. Hooker in the afternoon. And I was able to do that because they didn't need me in V again for another two weeks. And we only had two more weeks in T.J. Hooker. So I was able to say yes to this great 10-hour um, miniseries. They're, again, working with wonderful people. You know, it's like Jane and, uh, and Mark Singer and uh, people like that. It was just a wonderful experience. And uh, I, just, I just enjoyed it. And the whole thing was, you know, lo looking human like that and not looking like you, you know, monsters that uh, we were able to convince the people on this particular planet that they, we were their friends, et cetera, right. et cetera, et cetera. 
and then finally the great review. But uh, and uh, Ken, uh, when he came along, he wanted to do another uh, miniseries. He actually before that he wanted to make a film. He had a film. We, you know, he asked all of us, and we said, "Sure, we're available." And he tried to make it into a, a motion picture film, and there was no acceptance. And then he wrote it again um, as another miniseries. They wouldn't accept it. And then when it came along as a series, again, he submitted his idea of the script, and they, they turned him down. And they, they uh, see, they made a big mistake when they went on. Uh, they did it as a series much later. I do recall First that. First of yeah. all, they shouldn't have. Yeah, they should have had Jane Badler and Mark Singer come back in, the two opposing forces. That would have brought back in the entire following that we had created when we did it years before. You would have had people that were 10, 20 years older that would have said, oh, characters from the original show. And they should have, uh, you know, just continued it that way. And they didn't. They didn't capture an, an audience. And they had turned down Ken, who had created the thing, when he turned in his script. and I. Well, you see, everybody, everything had changed in 20 years in the motion picture business. Everything was accelerating. Uh, the people that were involved at that time had not been involved in the original D. Uh, it was, you know, much younger, much younger people wanting to make their own decisions and uh, so forth and so on. So it, it was a shame that he didn't have the opportunity either to make it as a film or to have done the repeat, but all of the actors that were on that were top notch and it was a 10 hour miniseries and it was, it was an enormous hit. Yeah. Well, I think it's because it was very high concept. And I want you to remember something, John, just remember this now, Chris, we're your friends. <laughs> I don't believe you. I'm running away and I'm hiding my, I'm hiding my pet rat too. But, uh, yeah. Well, no. the whole thing about that too, you, every actor who, uh, I didn't have to eat any gophers or anything, but you know, we had to have be fitted by a, um, an ophthalmologist or whatever for these uh, contact lenses. Right. And those lenses at that time were the way they were years ago. They covered the entire eye. Otherwise they would have floated. A lot of the actors had trouble floating and they had to keep shooting the scenes. The makeup on that was three and a half hours for me. When you were in full full lizard regalia, or yeah, the, for the face and everything to to make the rug real of the lizard thing, right? And if she had, they had a little space. Uh, you know, they built half my face, and they did the rest with latex so it looked real. So when she pulled it down, I was exposed. But if if she hadn't got it, they would have missed a whole half day shooting because it would have taken an hour to take to uh, take it off. And I would have had to come in the next day and do another three and a half hours, as I did on um, uh, as the Klingon and Next uh, Generation. That well, I, was, I, um, I wanted to talk to you about that, maybe. too. Yeah, because um, I'd venture to say that most of our listeners are also Star Trek fans. And you have the distinction, again, of playing two Trek roles. You were the Klingon warrior Lacour in Next Gen and a DS9 crossover. It was called Birthright. And you also had that recurring role as Admiral Owen Paris on Voyager. So what was it like to get into the latex and tap into that inner Klingon? Oh, it was just... Uh... Well, we had to get in about 3.30 or 4 in the morning. You have to come to mind, you know, people come up. I had to learn how to sing in Klingonese, too, because <laughs> I sang in that. Klingon opera, I thing. hope. No, no. <laughs> it started out as 
our, child, our children's baby song and some older people around. In the end, it actually was a warrior's song. But um, And the, the show originally was when Worf was going to go back to find his father who had been captured. You're not supposed to be captured. You're supposed to come home on your shield. You're supposed to be dead. But he met, you know, I, I played a very good friend of his father who knew him as a child and explained that they, we had been knocked out by something and this and that, and we were captured by the Romulans. So he certainly uh, couldn't have stayed that war. So he went back. And you, you, have, to, you have to approach every role in a different way. And I, I just uh, uh, approached it. Oh, also, I had to go out and be fitted for teeth. I had to get a whole new set of teeth. And, uh, you know, to learn to uh, re-talk. And you essentially have to find where you stand in that. And I was a leader at that time, as was Worf, and the Romulan leader at that particular time. And you had to live in disgrace because you were still alive and you you and the rest of the Klingons that were on that planet captured were not, not able to get away. Uh, you should have actually rose up and given your lives away, even though you couldn't get off the planet. And what happened toward the end, the young Klingons that were birthed there and some were, uh, they discovered that they were great warriors. They didn't know that. And they were all very, very angry about it, terribly angry. So I figured that that particular generation that discovered their warrior background would probably rise up and have a rebellion against the Romulans, even from as being captives. But actually, we were prisoners there, and uh, he couldn't, he, you know, he would have stayed if his father was there, but he had to get back. He went back to the ship. And I just approached it as a, an understanding man with a certain amount of wisdom that he was only, he was built to fight, to kill but he was not some kind of a monster. He did it. Well, you might, you have to look like the Spartans. What the Spartans did, they, they let a, let the child be with the mother and the father for the first 10 years of their lives. Then after that, they were trained as warriors. Some made it, some didn't. But after that, that was their whole purpose in life was to be on the offensive or when needed to go to war. And I thought a lot about that as a Klingon. And that didn't mean they were crazy nuts out of their minds. It just meant uh, that they were strong men. They were capable, uh, capable of defeating forces much larger than theirs because of all of the preparation and the training that they had. And it was the same playing, uh, playing uh, Lacour this particular Klingon, it was wonderful being in part one and part two and uh, being, a, being a part of that uh, situation. I always start with the premise, you know, you say to yourself, we have so many of these recreations today and they're mechanical, monsters. They're all monsters or killers. You have to look back on uh, Bela Lugosi. You have to look back on Boris Karloff. And you have to look back on a lot of these parts and they didn't really have to, the way they looked and what they were was the most frightening thing. 
you know, they didn't, they didn't um, have to pretend to be fierce or anything else. They were just frightening characters. And, uh, you know, even as Frankenstein, if you, if you may have remembered in a few of those scenes that when he and the child were looking at a beautiful little flower that were growing, there was some sensitivity in that man. And what it is like today, a lot of people in our country are repulsed. Well, I'll tell you that film I did about the, uh, the deaf first deaf baseball player. He was referred to as a freak because he couldn't hear. And 30, 40 years ago, there was, there, there was nothing for handicapped people. Anybody in a wheelchair, anybody that was crippled, they were ignored by the public. They, they were just considered non-existent. They were, they, there, was a, there was a school in Boston called the Industrial School for Crippled and Deformed Children. And they were, you know, other within their own colony, outside, people, you know, didn't want them around because they were cripples. And, you know, just, and then when you see the sensitivity about these people and the sensitivity about even the monster Frankenstein, and even in somehow, uh, like, I saw the play on Broadway with Frank Langella. He did a wonderful job. And there were moments of understanding, even though he was a vampire. But you don't look for the worst in the character first. You look in why the character is what it is. You look at the background. You, you, because if you play it straight down, with you, you have to have curves. You have to have a little fog. You have to find out things that are, are unexpected that come out of the character. Otherwise, the character is just dull. Because the character has a personality, and it could, it's a limited personality. But, you know, like when Worf went there, he had great, even though he was the warrior that he was, he had great compassion looking for his father. He wanted to know where his father was, what happened to his father. You know, he, so that meant that he had some kind of family feelings, even though he could turn around and kill 20 people. You know, he was not insane. He was not a maniac. He was just a person placed in the body of a Klingon that, like a Spartan or anything else, was a savage. Just his her That's his heritage, right? Yeah. That's your heritage. That's mm. the way you're brought up. You don't know anything else. That's the way you're brought up. Well, you got— And, you know, um, you have to think. I think you have to, you know, maybe I do too much. I don't sit around and, you know, work and work and work, but I, I consider— especially in rehearsal in the theater. That's why the first week, if you have a good director, he lets you go in every direction you go. You, know, you might be totally wrong because as soon as you start, some directors, they want immediately want results. And what results do? They destroy creativity. You have to grow into the character. Now, when you're in a play, you have a little bit of time to grow into the character. But when you come on television or in a film, you have to have a pretty 90% idea of who the heck you are. Big difference. Big difference. Well, let me ask you, though. You had a recurring role as Owen Paris on Voyager. And since you were able to play that character a few times, did you find that you were able to grow into the role of Paris a little bit more as you like to do? Yeah, I had uh, I did six episodes. And what I grew into... My son and I, 
Robert Duncan McNeil did not get along very well as the characters in play before he went off into um, space as he did. Right. But as time went by and the absence of each other, we began to think in a different way. You know how sometimes you blow steam off and you, you never get a chance to apologize or to sit down and talk to somebody. And at the very, very end, when we looked at each other, when he came through the mole hole there, or whatever that, I can't, I think that's what they call it. <laughs> I think it was a transwarp conduit. There, I'm not sure. We were actually to be able to talk. We had some more compassion and understanding about each other. You can't just play a character from A to B. As an actor, you, you must know the whole alphabet. Or like a typewriter touching the keys, you must know through experience and through study and technique and having the opportunity like I did of having done, I did a tremendous amount of community theater. I apprenticed. I did summer stock. I did uh, winter stock. I did nickel and dime road shows and, and shows in New York. And that game, and they all small parts to begin with. And I grew into larger parts. A lot of the actors today don't have those opportunities because uh, it's too expensive to uh, have summer stock now. It's too expensive to, uh, to send unless there's big, big stars on the road. There are fewer opportunities for actors, and especially the actors that come out of Carnegie or Yale or Northwestern. Uh, the, the, the opportunities aren't there. To uh, the apprenticeships, I mean, I had to work and I got a junior membership in Actors' Equity in my senior year of high school. But I had to work another two years before I became a principal actor. When I went to New York, I never got any big parts. I got what they call uh, under fives at the beginning. They didn't give me any more than five lines. That's how you started. You, you grew. But people today, most people, they just want to jump in. And I mean, hell, if you wanted to be a carpenter, you have to apprentice, even with your job, you know, you know, it, it takes a certain amount of knowledge and knowing what you're doing and what to ask. People are just in too much of a damn hurry today. You've got to learn your craft. That's the first thing. And until the, until five years ago, I used to go back to class every year for four to six weeks. Or if I couldn't get back to class, my wife and I used to do my wife, Patricia, who was also an actress who started very, very young at the Alley Theater in Texas, we always went back together or we did a play together. And she studied. People, you know, they, I don't know. That's, you, you can't just go out and take an engine apart in an automobile unless you know what the heck you're doing. But the most important thing is you have to know how to put it back together again so you as the actor will be the engine that will move the plot forward. That's the way I look at it. Wow. Well, I mean, you've been on stage, you've been on screen, you've been on television, and like you said, you've been acting for 65 years. Just let loose. What has been your favorite role or roles, whether it be stage, screen, or otherwise? Well, I know exactly what that is. When my wife and I did, as I told you, uh, Arthur Miller's play, uh, The Death of a Salesman, playing Willie Roman. And in the film that didn't get much viewing at all, it's become a cult film, was Fist which is the uh, uh, movie about the, the founding of the Teamsters Union, starring uh, St Sylvester Stallone. You know, Boyle was there. There are a lot of very good actors in it, and I had a very fine part. And uh, on television, it was Barnum Lee. Hmm. 
And, um, you know, I would say because of, uh, and after that, after I did all those heavies and everything, it was hard to get back into comedy. They didn't, they say, oh, we don't, we didn't know you did comedy. I, I, you know, you can't say, well, look, I'm an actor. I do what you asked me to do. Like comedy is part of the package you bring into the game. You know, there's, there's no, I mean, it's, there's the story about the, uh, the old actor who's dying. And he said, dying is easy. Comedy is hard. <laughs> yeah, it's the old. Yeah, that that. Yeah, that's yeah, if you don't, if you don't have, but if you don't have timing, if you don't have timing in comedy, you don't have anything, and you can't change any lines or any words or any sentences because the writers, and it's the same on Star Trek or any of those shows, they work for hours to make those things make sense to the next thing that's coming up, and. Um, there are a few instances where I paraphrase, but not on those shows. Sometimes they want every period. And I can understand why. When I, I, I've worked with Betty White several times. I played her boyfriend on uh, Golden Girls. I played her husband on Everwood. And her most recent comedy show, I, I can't remember. I did 10 episodes of that. But it, it's, uh, it's a sense that you build. You build a sense. Of, of what to do. And uh, if actors do nothing else, they should go and take a couple of technique classes. And I tell every actor, or every, it's so hard. So many people come to me and want advice. And I tell them within a 55 mile or 50 mile range of where they're living to find any community theater that they can and do as many plays as they can. And then to study, you don't have to go to four years. You can go to New York and you can take a two-year course at the American Academy of Dramatic Art at Sandy Meisner. Learn your craft. Some actors get lucky, you know. They jump in and they learn. Some actors have never studied. It's 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 a very personal thing. Mm. Very personal. That Betty White show you were referring to was called Off Their Rockers, which was a comedy series. Oh, yeah. That was fun because uh, we just assaulted people with, Improv, right? <laughs> and that's the reason I did it. Another reason I did it is it got me out of the house. I like to get out of the house. You know, when I did that film, you know, I was I was lucky enough to get into one of the biggest hits that got a, a nominated for the Academy. I was going to ask you about that. Yeah, I was in Get Out. Right, get you had out. a pivot, kind of a pivotal role in that. And they called right? me later. Oh yeah, I was the guy that started the whole uh, the whole thing, the whole situation. <laughs> right. So. You know, but that 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 had that had humor, a lot of uh, racial things in it, uh, a lot of little tips and hints. It it was made for four and a half million dollars and made over two hundred and fifty million dollars. Yeah, and won the there Oscar. Were no movies. Yeah. yeah, and for the best original script by uh, uh, Peel, wonderful man to work for, who directed it, and their entire company. Uh, Bloomhouse, and they called me and my wife, and we worked in another film for them recently called The Oath, which is about the time when they wanted people to sign a loyalty oath. And uh, and then I worked on Shameless. I, I, I had a wonderful time recently, and th this this other film. So, you know, they still call me. I'm going. My wife and I are going to do a film up in. Uh, Oh, up in Syracuse in January in the nice warm weather. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> yes, we're going to play. We're going to play Grandma and Grandpa. But you know, it's um, 
it keeps you going. Uh, uh, I mean, we do other things. We have a lot of other things we do in our lives. You know, we're doing more traveling now, but we each have, my wife is, uh, is, is writing a memoir, which is quite good. She, she's written already close to uh, well over a hundred pages. That's great. I work with my art. Well, maybe in the next two or three months, I'm going to begin uh, coaching actors. Okay. Well, you be, you began the interview telling us about your art. Can you elaborate on that? I mean, what what drives you to create what you do? It sounded like you were talking about making some kind of sculptures or or what. And is there someplace I online really that do. people can well, see I that? Started, I went back to class of seven years uh, every Saturday that I could. Andy Prime told me about an old friend of mine from over 60 years ago, a fine actor. And I went back and I studied. I, st- I started with oils, went to acrylic. Then I went into collage. Then I got an idea one day of a, a lamp. And I got some brass instruments and I, uh, I built a couple of lamps. And uh, I make lamps out of various things because it gives me an opportunity to use my hands. And um, I work on collage. And the wonderful thing about that, the most important thing, is when you're in class or you work, I have a studio, or you're in your studio, you do a tremendous amount of thinking, and then it's very difficult. It oftentimes doesn't come out quite the way you think it will. But once you start working on it, it brings forth a tremendous amount of serenity. Because you're there, just you and the canvas, or you're there with the collage, and every once in a while, uh, well, people, um, one of my earlier paintings, the way it all started, really, uh, was a, a, a Japanese sunset. I sent a copy of it to my daughter in uh, the law office in New York. And one of the lawyers came in and said, I love Japanese painting. Who did it? She said, my father. And he, she said, does he have the original? She said, would he sell it? So uh, my, she called me and I called him and uh I told him I'd have to speak to the gallery guy and so forth and so on. I gave him a price. He said, I'll put the check in the mail, send it to me. Everybody finds when they look at a painting or a piece of artwork, it's very personal. I had another guy did a bunch of uh, horses. Uh, at the beginning of time, the way the horse looked into the present time. And right smack in the middle was a red horse. And this fellow who... Uh, He's retired, but he was the head of the American Dental Society. He saw it, and he said, I'm gonna buy, I want to buy that because my son's coming into the business, and I had made up a story uh, when he was very, very young about a red horse, and I want to put this in his office. So, you know, that's the way it is. I, I, I just I do what I do. You see, if I had started art, I did a little bit in New York at the Art Students League, but not a lot. My acting was my main focus. But if I had, you know, chosen to do something else, that's what I would have chosen. But you've got to start very young. I don't have, um, I do whatever I want to do. Most artists have to do things so somebody can look at them and say, oh, yeah, that's a Warhol. Oh, yeah, that's a de Koenig. Oh, yeah, that's a Rembrandt. I'm very eclectic. I just paint whatever I feel like painting or I make whatever I feel like making. And I didn't start. And to this day, really, uh, it, it's it's not for commerce or for sale, uh, for um, to sell, but uh, because it pleases me. Uh, and, you know, if somebody wants to buy it, I have a show once in a while. 
fine. I go out and buy some more paint, uh, some more canvas, or this or that, and it gives me great pleasure and joy, and, and um, it makes me feel really good that somebody else feels the same way about my work. Well, that's a great place to be in, isn't it? And you don't have to answer to anyone. I think that's that's just an amazing thing that you, you, you get to do what you want to do. And you're certainly keeping just as busy as ever, it seems to me. You had mentioned the Silent Natural as being in post-production. Any idea when we might be able to see that? Oh, I can tell you that, yes. That's going to be, well, you see, being a baseball film, it missed. They have to put the music in. It's going to come out next year, uh, spring training, baseball spring training. The, the Silent Natural. The Oath maybe will come out in four or five months. I would imagine that's coming from the same producers uh, that produced uh, Get Out. And um, you have my website there? No, we can put that up on our website for all of our listeners to check out. What is the uh, website, sir? RichardHerd.com. Oh, that's easy to remember. That's pretty simple. <laughs> yeah. And my Facebook is... Um, facebook.com slash official Richard Hurd. We will make sure to include both of those links on our website for everybody to check out. They'll, they'll see several things on there. They'll see my paintings, my collage, my lamps, and I also design jewelry out of bone. Hmm. I have a friend who makes large bone pieces and I get the scraps and I, uh, I, I design jewelry as well. I just, just keep on keeping on, Mister Hurd. That's a that's yeah. Well, you got to you know you got to keep your mind going, and uh, you know you may not have the strength you had as a young man, but you just do the best you can. Now I'm going to ask you one final question: Was the Mostein spinoff was he going to be successful in his time travel, or was it going to be a straight drama? No, 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 no. <laughs> uh, because he had found his, his daughter came back to him. Right. And she came back to him with love, as you remember. And she was taking him home to Milwaukee. And um, they were going to be together and maybe on a small television show, he would do a children's show. Maybe he would go, maybe he would go to the library on Saturday and, you know, have a gathering of young children and their mothers. Maybe he would read children's books to them, you know, things of that sort. You see, um, he, that's a way of finding serenity, you know, volunteer for something that gives you pleasure, volunteer for something where you can really, there are a lot of people out there that need help, physical help, you know, just to take somebody for a walk, get something at the store, you know, and you have these things like meals on wheels. You have so many people out there that are doing that, but Mo would go back and he would be with his daughter and he would meet some, he would meet her children. He would be a grandfather. And even though having missed his own children growing up, he would be able to be around the grandchildren. So that's a huge plus. So that would have, I thought it would have made a a good, a wonderful um, series because I certainly would have enjoyed doing it. But there are so many things, you know, Chris, in life that just don't work out. Yeah. But we just have to, you know, move forward. May I speak to your audience for a moment? Please, please do. I was going to ask if you had any message for the leapers out there. Yeah, for, for the listeners, you know, there are good times. 
there are bad times and talk is very easy and people giving you a little thing to read. But, I, you know, it's, it's difficult oftentimes to find serenity within yourself because jobs or what's going on in the world. But you, you have to find something that gives you a certain amount of personal pleasure. Find something that gives you personal pleasure. Find something, even meditation, that gives you serenity. Uh, you might want to go to a museum and just look at some paintings and, and, and find serenity. You might find serenity through your, your spirituality, your faith. Um, but it's an important thing. You, today, we have to find serenity within ourselves. And it's not an easy thing. It's not a magic thing. You know, you, you have to really work at it. And I have my good days and I have my bad days. But I have to tell you, I'm the luckiest guy in the world because my wife and I just two days ago celebrated our 38th anniversary. And I must say, in my lifetime, it's been the greatest thing. I'm a lucky guy. And we met on a Christmas Eve through an acting friend of mine. And find somebody that you can get close to. Hopefully find somebody that loves you and you can love and find the big thing is find peace of mind because you mustn't let things live rent free in your head because every time you think it goes right, take, it takes advantage of your present time thinking about the past. You know, the past is gone. It's easy to say, but we have to deal with it every day by dismissing it and no matter what it is, you don't have to do anything great. It doesn't have to be great. It doesn't have to sell. It, it's a very personal thing. And if I could wish anything, you know, I would really wish all of us out there today to try to find love in their lives, serenity, and somebody to share their life with. And to all you fans and folks out there, I had a great, great interview. Take care and have a beautiful life. Or as Joe Campbell would say, which is very important, follow your bliss. Well, that is a wonderful sentiment, Mr. Hurd, and thank you so much for joining us on the Quantum Leap Podcast. Well, that was a really great interview, and uh, it was it was awesome to hear what he had to say about the episode. And uh, he was really nice with you, wasn't he? He he called you and left you a voicemail before the interview happened. Yeah, the funny thing about this interview was that it almost didn't happen. We had uh, two prior times to talk to him set up, and for whatever reason, they just fell through. And I was really scared that we had lost it all together, but. It's just a testament to Richard that he is such a stand-up guy. He really wanted to talk about Captain Galaxy. As you can tell from that interview, he adores the character, and he's enamored of his role on Quantum Leap. He absolutely loves it. It's his favorite. So to, to get back to what you asked, Allison, in that vein, when he found out that he was going to talk to me, he sent me a voicemail, a personal voicemail on my cell phone to let me know that, yeah, we're on and we're going to do it. And I'm just going to play the end of that voicemail for you right now. And remember, this is Captain Galaxy and Future Boy. 
Now tell me, do you think I'm ever going to erase that from my phone? Is that not the greatest <laughs> thing ever? <laughs> Make that your ringtone. <laughs> you hear from so many people that Quantum Leap is like their favorite role or one of their favorite roles. And that's so unusual for a show to resonate with that many people that were involved with it. And that's so great. And I, I hope in the future, uh, in the future, uh, he, he's able to do something with the Captain Galaxy thing because he seems so excited oh. about, you know, that spinoff he wanted to do or Wouldn't that do be a, good. a short or something. That would be amazing. Yeah. Well, do you guys want to be even more jealous than my voicemail? Mm. Uh, Richard Hurd uh, promised to send me two or three signed photos of him and Scott as Captain Galaxy and Future Boy. <laughs> wow. Aww. That's great. Yeah. So I can't wait to get them. Uh, they'll probably arrive sometime this week, I hope. But I mean, Tommy said he's that kind of old school guy. He wrote Tommy, mm-hmm. what, a letter a week after they got done producing, just thanking him for the role. And he's just like, give me your address. I want to send you something. And I was just like, you don't have to. And he's like, no, 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 I insist. So here's this guy giving up his time to talk to us and then he's thanking us it's just it's above and beyond and i am just thrilled to pieces that i got to talk to him that we were able to make it work out richard if you're listening thank you again thank you so much i've gained a real appreciation for him as an actor too since since doing this podcast because he's just one of those that guys you know i see him in so many things but uh to know more about him who he is as a person he just sounds like a really outstanding guy yeah and isn't it so great when one of your heroes turns out to be a, a really nice guy in real life as well for sure so i don't know that he was one of my heroes but i'll tell you this he's he's definitely now you know one of my favorite people i've ever interviewed so again richard thank you so much was this one of your favorite episodes or your favorite episode me chris yeah, you seem you seem really excited about yeah, it. Yeah, so. no, this is in my top five. This is one of my favorites. My favorite episode is yet to come, and I will reveal oh. that. Well, if you want, mm. maybe I'm going to do a little cross-promotion here, since um, Albie and I recently made an appearance on a podcast called The Five-ish Fangirls Podcast, and they, they contacted Albie out of the blue. They said they wanted to talk Quantum Leap. And in the course of that discussion, we spoke to them for about an hour, uh, mainly about your mirror image discovery, Allison, and, um, you know, us sort of uh, coming on board the podcast and sort of the dynamic that we're trying to bring to it. But of course, in the course of the podcast, the question came up, what's your favorite episode? So if you want to hear my favorite episode, you can listen to the Five-ish Fangirls (laughs) podcast all about Quantum Leap, or you can just hang out. It's coming up. I'll tell you that. It's a season three episode. You know what? Mm. I have a feeling that our favorite episode is the same, but I'm not right, going to no, say what it is. Yeah, let's, yeah, let's save gonna that. I'm not going to say what it Ooh, is. That'll be fun. <laughs> I'm going to call it now. When that episode comes up, I bet it's the same. Well, let's hope. There's a lot of good ones coming up. But uh, yeah, and if you guys, like I said, if you want spoilers, just go online, uh, look up Five-ish Fangirls Podcast. Uh, you can find it on Stitcher and iTunes, and I think Albie put a link on our Facebook page as well. So have a listen, and you'll get a sneak peek, and you'll be ahead of the curve. You'll, you'll know something the crowd doesn't know. So check them out. They were really great, and we had a fun time talking to them. Okay, so we've had a lot of talk about Captain Galaxy and Future Boy. Uh, Now it's time for one of our regular segments with Hayden McQueenie's Quantum Deep. Speaking of Hayden, do you guys want to hear something really cool? Always. Yeah, what's the cool thing? Hayden, uh, he, you know, he contacted me on uh, like Facebook and he's like, hey, bro, can you Skype for a couple of minutes? And I'm like, yeah, sure. What's up? I get on the Skype. He's like, you got your mic on? 
And I was like, well, I can have my mic on. And he's like, get your mic on. And I said, what's going on? And he, he just launched into this episode segment of Quantum Deep. And I got to say, I was a little bit blindsided, but I had a great time. So guys, settle in. It's a little bit long, but I think it's a lot of fun. Here is Quantum Deep. Well, thanks for that intro, Chris. Greetings and salutations, leapers. When dealing with time travel, paradoxes are impossible, yet inevitable. So their very existence creates another impossible yet inevitable paradox. I think we're in quantum deep. <laughs> You're a lunatic. <laughs> <laughs> At least we got some stuff for the uh, for the outtakes already. Okay. Right? Yeah. <laughs> for sure. All right. All right. Well, this is a warning for Heather and any other first-time watchers of Quantum Leap. There will be spoilers about the whole series in this segment. And also, I sincerely hope that while what we say is accurate, that nobody says it's on the nose. As here, the saying on the nose means something stinks. So... (laughs) Oh, oh! I, I don't know. That, that's a swipe at me. Maybe I think I use that term a lot. <laughs> it's a swipe at everyone on the podcast. Everyone uses it. That makes me laugh every time I hear it. <laughs> it's uh, colloquialisms. They're just different from yeah. uh, continent to continent, I suppose. That's exactly it. A podcast, you'll agree with me, Chris, is essentially subjective, right? Basically, you'll watch an episode of Quantum Leap. You'll try to make sense of what you've just seen and then state your opinion. Would you agree with me on that? Um, if subjective means that my opinion is the right one, then yes. <laughs> no, of course. Well, the right one to you. Yeah. You're, you are absolutely correct in that, sir. Well, that's all very well and good, and I think most logical people would understand that. Unfortunately, the vast majority of people aren't logical. And the big issue with releasing statements to the public is that the public can take what is stated as fact, as objective fact, and form opinions based on what they've heard. So while I know we try to make it clear that what is being said in the podcast is just the viewpoint of the individual, it's probably best in everyone's interest if we at least try and have some checks and balances so that we can at least try and give an objective or at least less subjective recount of the facts. So this segment will just be focused on trying to give evidence to expand on, to clarify or maybe refute any doubtful claims that may have been heard on the podcast and hopefully we might reach a consensus. All right, but can we also reach a consensus on the outset that your interpretation of claims being doubtful is subjective. Oh, absolutely. All right. So as long as we're proceeding under (laughs) no false assumptions, sir. All right. All right. Well, let's see where we go with this. Well, us wanting to be objective actually kind of leads a little bit into my first point. Um, This is something you discussed in the Runaway episode of the podcast. I believe that you and Alison and Matt were saying that it seemed very out of character for Sam to have read The Feminine Mystique. It actually does the character a great disservice to say that, because highly intelligent people actually read very widely. This is in part how they actually become so intelligent, because having read so much from so many different sources, they develop the critical thinking skills they need from seeing the multiple points of view. And uh, if I remember correctly, Don Belisario actually spoke along those lines as well in the interview that he did for us. 
this is one reason why I personally try and get my news from a lot of different sources, because everyone knows there's bias in the media. You might think one way and go Fox News. You might think one way and go for some whatever the opposite of Fox News is <laughs> in America. Um, but if you at least try and see multiple viewpoints, then you get a better understanding of what's actually going on in the world and you're all able to make some more well-informed decisions. And it's not just news either. It's pretty much all media and entertainment. Like, I'll still watch God's Not Dead even though I'm an atheist. And I'll still watch Love, Simon even though I'm straight. And I'll read The Feminine Mystique even though I'm male. I mean, do I have to be a wizard to watch Harry Potter? I, I don't think that it's necessarily that Sam wouldn't read The Feminine Mystique or f get some kind of edification or broader knowledge because that's sort of the kind of person he is. I just think that it comes out of left field, especially when you consider that what we've seen of Sam on the show, uh, I go back to Starcrossed when he was talking about Bunsen burners and being in a chem lab and how wonderful it was and what a foreign world lit was to him. I don't know. Also, maybe you can help me out with this. I mean, I'm, I'm trying, I don't know when Feminine Mystique came out. I guess it had to be some, when was Runaway? 67? It was the, well, hang on. They talked about the Civil Rights Amendment and that was 1964. So oh, it must have been about 1963. Yeah. All right. So what? Where was Sam in 1963? Sam, circa, Sam, circa uh, 1963. Well, well, he was 10 years old. But yeah. remember how Sam actually said that his mum would give him books to read when he was about three years old to shut him up. I'd say it's quite possible that uh, he might still have this kind of um, habit where um, the. <laughs> The mother might get sick of him being so being so smart and vocal hmm. and uh, might just give him a book. And that might have just been a book that was nearby to give to him. So I really think that if you're going to go with his mom, then you're losing the argument because his mom is the one that told Katie to take off the free love shirt. They seem to be very stodgy and conservative. And I don't think the feminine mystique would have made it onto the Beckett farm. However, what. Um, does pique my interest is the fact that Sam was very young. I assume that he might have been like mid-teens, late-teens when it came out, and then he just got sucked into school, sucked into science, sucked into, eh, you know, his his world. And the feminine mystique is nowhere in that world, if you if you think about it. But he was 10. He didn't go to college till what? He was 16. I suppose he could have read it at some point. It's not that I, – I think, number one, it was funny. It was just so out of left field. That's a great book. And when Allison said, when did Sam read The Feminine Mystique? I was thinking the exact same thing. I don't know if we were alone in the audience with that, but it just was an observation that clicked with the both of us. And I still think, okay, maybe it's not out of character per se, because Sam is a, a well-read, open-minded guy. I just still don't think that he ever would have read The Feminine Mystique. I'm empirically, yes, it's possible. Is it a win this character that he would give it a chance? Yeah, maybe. Did he? No. I'm sorry, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, we might have to agree to disagree yeah, on that one because right. I think it's definitely in his character to read widely and to see uh, – well, you can't say he didn't read it because he obviously said he did. So we have canon uh, on our, our side he as never, well. So. He never said he read it. He said that's a great book. Well, um, how's he going to know that unless he because read it? Because it, it sparked a revolution in women's rights and women's libs. So it is objectively a great book for 
what it what it started. It doesn't mean that he read it. He just respects it. I uh, see. I don't. Well, that's know, quite possible. Yeah. So I don't know that you can say that he read it. Um, and I guess maybe that negates kind of what we said on the podcast. But either way, I mean, you know, you make a valid point. But it, it was also yeah. funny in the moment. So, <laughs> oh, yeah. it's definitely funny in the moment. Yeah. But I do think that he is very wide, very well read, and I do think that he has exposed himself to a lot of different points of view. I mean, that's probably how he's ended up so with such an open mind on so many different things. So, to me, being fair, this is subjective. But to me, it seems like that he would have he would have either read it at some point or at least know enough about it to be able to back up his statement that it's a great book. Okay, fair enough. I can't yeah. argue with that. Something else that was pondered in the Runaway Show was asking what happens to Sam's body in when it's in the waiting room, if it even is his body. So let's just step back a second. We'll remember that the only stuff that's actually canon is what we see in the show. So anything in the novels or the comics that might contradict this, we can't take as fact. I hope you're not offended by that because I know you did write one of the books. No, no, not at all. Not at all. But can 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 I just clarify? Are we talking about Sam in the waiting room between leaps or during leaps? Between leaps. Okay. Okay. Go ahead. All right. Well, in the show, there's actually enough evidence where you could infer what probably does happen. All right. So I'll just list the evidence we've got. In Genesis, Al tells Sam that time passes between leaps. And even though it's instantaneous to the leaper, it took a week in their time. In eight and a half months... Sam and Al explicitly state that it's Sam's entire body that leaps and that he's surrounded by the illusion of the physical aura of the leapy, and it works in exactly the same way, but in reverse for the leapy, their whole body ends up in the waiting room and they're surrounded by Sam's aura. In Dr. Ruth, we see Dr. Ruth leap out of the waiting room and the vampire leaps in into the exact same position. In Revenge of the Evil Leaper, Zoe tries to shoot Aaliyah but Aaliyah leaps away just in time. Now, the bullet passes through the empty aura before Angel, who was the Lee returns. And this leaves both Aaliyah and Angel unharmed. And also in Mirror Image, Al and Gushi are shocked to find the waiting room empty. So this suggests that even in between leaps, there must be something there. Here's the thing. I think Mirror Image yeah. is a special case because Sam was on a leap. So they were shocked to find it empty, but... He maybe that's because they knew he had landed somewhere. Okay, but how would they know that he's landed somewhere unless they've got something to monitor? It seems like what they would monitor is the waiting room and see when they finally do get some sort of uh, some sort of movement or some sort of life. Okay, now now let's let's just back up a little bit because this was a very interesting wrinkle to the discussion that uh, we had in that podcast between Matt, Allison, and me. And I really think that they kind of changed my mind on this. I think what you're implying and what I'm inferring anyway from what you're saying is that Sam's body is apparently in the waiting room at all times and just animates when a when a leapy when he replaces somebody. Because that's the way I always saw it. But then Allison said, then why did he step into the accelerator and vanish? So from their point of view, the waiting room is empty between leaps until Sam leaps into somebody. And right. the switch You're is very, made. very close. <laughs> so what? So You're what's, what's close. your interpretation somewhere between right. these two? You said you said it's 
his body in the waiting room. It's not his body, but his aura is always there. I mean, we can look at the Dr. Ruth leap to back this up. We know that time has to pass. We've just seen a sped up version of it. But Dr. Ruth stands up and she says next and leaps. And then the silhouette stays in exactly the same position for when the um, vampire shows up. So there must be something there keeping it in place. The aura is always there. It's just it's completely lifeless. There's nothing behind it, basically. It's just something there that's not going to do anything until there's something inside it. So what that's is it like, like? Like a Sam-shaped force field? Th- that's pretty much what I'm. That's pretty much what I would have to say. And we've got the the bullet passing through the aura to back this up. All right, that's an interesting interpretation. I'm going to go with what I said on that show. Is I think they leave <laughs> it deliberately muddy. And since we're breaking the timeline. Um, with Dr. Ruth and the vampire episode, um, which Tommy talks about, um, (laughs) uh, I hope we, I hope we do get to talk to him about it. It'll be good fun. No, he's, he's game. (laughs) You you heard the top of the show. I mean, so he can't wait to come and talk about that one. But, um, that being said, I know where to run. All right. We see that he stands up when he's got no legs. So obviously that's a body leap, but I'm going to maintain that in eight and a half months said left it deliberately muddy so that they wouldn't be locked into telling a certain type of story or locked out of telling a certain type of story. Um, oh, I'm so glad you brought that up because that's what I'm going to talk about next. <laughs> uh, all right. All right. Well, well, shoot. But so so from your but from your point of view, then it's not his body in there between leaps and it's not empty between leaps. It's sort of this smoke and mirrors light show that kind of looks like Sam. Yeah, but there's nothing behind it, basically. It doesn't breathe. It doesn't eat. It doesn't feel that's pain. exactly it. Or remorse yep. or pity, and it will not stop ever. <laughs> I'm sorry, I went on. All right, you're, you're venturing. <laughs> I'm trying to stay evidence based here. <laughs> All right, but but yeah, you're getting the ba- you're getting the basic idea. All right, all right. I mean, yeah. that's interesting right. too. I mean, I, this is to me all of this is so open to interpretation, and I've never heard that Absolutely. interpretation. So I'm I'm very happy that you found something like a new wrinkle that again I never would have thought about. Cool. But anyway, since we are on the subject of auras, something that you did ask quite extensively um, in that episode was, how could Sam be seen to be giving birth if he's not? The wording that Al and Sam use is very, very important. It's an illusion of the physical aura. The doctor's seeing the head crowning because that's what he's got to see in order for it to make sense. Basically, the, the aura is there to trick whoever is looking at it to think that what's supposed to be going on is actually going on. Does that kind of make sense? I, I see what you're saying, but the baby yeah. disappeared from the waiting room. So where did it go? Ah, ah, ah. That's another very important thing. Okay. I'll, I'll just ask you something. How many times have you thought you hung up your keys and then went back and found that they disappeared only to find that you'd left them somewhere else the that entire is a, time? a very bad example because I lose my keys at least three times a day. So ask. Okay, so it happens quite a lot. Speak of it, I never hang them. I just, I I drop them wherever I drop them. And then I say, where the hell did I put those things? But it's reasonable to think you might have, you might remember hanging them up at some point. I get get Putting them in their usual spot and then find, when you go back, oh, that's actually not what happened. That's not, I I did something else and I might have remembered it slightly differently. That's pretty much exactly what happened with the baby. All right. Now, remember, time passes between leaps. Okay. And. When Sam leaps, even if he's injured, the very next leap, he's perfectly healed. So 
this suggests he probably goes to some sort of a limbo state where he can rest and recuperate and get his hair cuts and go to the toilet and everything that you alluded to. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. The most logical explanation for what happened with the baby is that the baby actually ended up in limbo. Okay, And the reason that they thought the baby was with Billie Jean is because, well, it just never crossed their mind that the baby would be somewhere else. It was kind of the it's kind of the the statement that once you get rid of everything wrong, wrong, because they specifically say, Sam, you're upsetting the baby. You and the baby are linked. They're obviously monitoring a pregnant woman with a baby in her stomach. They said it took the entire team in the waiting room to stop the birth. The baby was there. To stop the labor. You don't see the baby until you actually give birth, do you? They stop the labor. They're going to monitor another another living being inside of Billie Jean. It's not an empty stomach. It's not an empty womb stomach. Listen to me. It's not an empty (laughs) womb. Hayden, I, I don't buy your logic on that one. The baby was there. Then the baby wasn't there. If the baby was in some limbo, they would have said, where the hell is this baby? How would they know she was pregnant? Because if they're just seeing Sam's aura, then... Which they are. (laughs) Right. So then how would they know she's pregnant to begin with? Probably because she was going through the labor pains when she was in the waiting room and because she probably says, I'm pregnant, I need help. What I'm saying is, I'm you know, it's easy to shoot down your argument, but it's also easy to shoot down every argument with this episode (laughs) because it just doesn't make sense when you when you dig too deep don't dig too okay deep, that's, that's your good point yeah right. this, that's your good point but yeah. the point is though once you get rid of everything that's impossible then all that's left regardless of how improbable is has to be what's happened well okay? has to be now, is a being, very very loaded term that's all i'm saying <laughs> yeah no that's fair in this and, um, in this it's case good that we have the ch- it's good that we have the chance to do this debate. I'm just saying that the only logical explanation is that the baby must have been safe somewhere else because it, w- it clearly can't have been in Sam. We both agree with that. It cannot have been in Sam because Sam is a man. He doesn't have a womb. There's nowhere for the baby to be, and there's no way for the baby to get out unless they – well, I suppose unless they cut him open if it theoretically was possible for him to be in there, but it's not. And they checked Billy Jean and found that the baby wasn't there either doesn't necessarily mean it hadn't been there the whole time and then just disappeared, but it seems far more likely that the baby was just somewhere else and they just didn't look at Billie Jean because she says she's pregnant, she's going through the labour pains, they had to stop the labour and then they've just been monitoring her and keeping her safe and, yeah. It's open to so many interpretations and uh, I think Matt said, we're just going to go around in circles here. (laughs) <laughs> We're never going to get to a conclusion. You realize that. And I think he was right. Yeah. You know? I just think it's important to at least bring in some evidence and come up with what seems like the most logical solution. All right. But I, I see. I think that's completely illogical. I mean, it's <laughs> it's just as logical to, to cling to Allison's stipulation that it's magic, guys. It's just magic, <laughs> you know, because <laughs> it makes just as much sense. But anyway, yeah, it's interesting. Right. Okay. So the baby was in limbo. That's good. Yeah. All right. I think it makes the most sense. Okay. <laughs> now, at some points in that episode, you also weren't thinking fourth dimensionally. All right. I'm always thinking fourth dimensionally. <laughs> Not on the eight and a half months show. All right. Because uh, you're something that none of you seemed to realize when you were discussing whether or not the adoption was best for the baby is you were forgetting that it was in the 1950s. And I think Alison hit the nail on the head when she was saying it's what God wants. So in the Quantum Leap universe, Sam's leapt into situations because GTFW wants them changed. So if 
Sam's being put in the situation where he has to prevent the baby from being adopted out. There has to be a reason. Now, in the 1950s, the screening process for adoptive parents was far less strict. Would have been much easier for a predator or an abuser to adopt a child. I mean, Cassie from the adoption agency even tells Sam, where your baby goes is not important. I mean, that doesn't really sell the idea of the baby being safe in its adoptive home. So, I mean, you you are correct that on the surface, it seems like, you know, the baby's probably going to be much better off with a family that can actually afford to take care of it. But if GTFW doesn't want the baby there, then something bad must have happened to the baby in that um, original scenario for GTFW to want the baby to be with its mother. Okay, I, I can understand that. And that's a fair point. But I wish they yeah. would have just pointed that out because they yeah. seem to know a lot of things that are impossible to know in this episode. So if Ziggy can hack the Pentagon, I'm sure Ziggy can <laughs> can hack an adoption agency file and find out where the baby was and find out that it actually went to an abusive home at some point. So Billie Jean, you know, Sam's there to rescue the child from this future. They never yeah. said that. All they said was that Billie Jean regretted it and she wanted yeah. to keep her baby. And that was the only logic given. Now, granted, GTFW, whatever you want to call it, let's say the hand of God was keeping the baby safe in limbo, was also watching out for that baby in the future. And that's why Sam was there. That is a perfectly plausible way to look at the episode, especially given the premise of the show. But I just wish they would have maybe spelled that out a little bit clearer. That's all. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, I, I 100% agree with you. But then again, it's only a 42-minute episode, and they had so much going on oh, in I that. Mean, but honestly, so- yeah, but that's also yeah. just – that's a sentence. But anyway, um, again, this this episode, I mean, you can go around and around and around and around because it's so open yeah. for interpretation. Let's discuss the episode where Sam is most out of character, Lee Harvey Oswald, all right, because you to? did the – <laughs> yes. Oh, the number of times I was screaming into thin air listening to this eleven twenty two sixty three QLP crossover. Should we give, let's let's give people a little bit of context. Uh, can I? Do you mind, Hayden? Absolutely. A couple of years ago, I was a co-host of a podcast called eleven twenty two sixty three, an event podcast. It was a Stephen <laughs> King book about a time traveler who traveled back in time to prevent the Kennedy assassination. And from that, um, we did the Stephen King book, we did the Hulu miniseries, and then we did bonus episodes that talked about other shows, books, movies that had time travelers preventing the Kennedy assassination. And of course, the first bonus episode we ever did before even 112263, the series was over, was a Quantum Leap Lee Harvey Oswald crossover uh, with 112263. And I'm going to just go on record right now saying I do not like the Lee Harvey Oswald episode. So that might be a spoiler and that's for a future fine. podcast a couple of years from now. <laughs> but um, so when we discuss this, just know that I'm going to come at it maybe with a little bit of baggage. That's all. And that's all right. But where I've found glaring errors and <laughs> I have to point them out. Something that you found really jarring in the episode was the fact that a throwaway line in this episode completely shifted and accepted paradigm in Quantum Leap where originally Sam would have to complete his mission to put right what once went wrong in the original history or he couldn't leap. Right. But in Lee Harvey Oswald, Sam states success has nothing to do with leaping and wonders whether he'd leapt away from the original scenario he'd ended up in, which was Marina taking Oswald's picture before he could do the mission he was supposed to do. But you were mistaken. 
this so-called shift in paradigm actually was explicitly mentioned in an earlier episode. It was in A Leap for Lisa. Sam was unable to save Lisa because Al was too late getting to him to tell him what needed to be done. Now, Sam wonders why he hadn't leapt, and Al replies it's because he failed. But Sam replies that he doesn't believe he was there to save Lisa because success has nothing to do with leaping. And so something else needed to have to be done. And he was correct because originally what he'd done is stopped Lisa from saying the alibi, which got Al off the hook for the um, murder that he was charged with. Uh, And that meant that Sam had to prove Al's innocence now. So it actually was mentioned in a previous episode. Now, mind you, it was only one episode beforehand. I'll give you that. And fair enough. And I think that I don't know if after the fact off mic, we discovered that and I discussed it with Skip. It's all blurry. I got to tell you, Hayden. (laughs) Skip was my co-host, everybody. But um, I do realize that it was said in Elite for Lisa. But I will tell you this. um, We might even have discussed this on 11-22-63. So I apologize if you've heard this before, people. The premise of Quantum Leap is finish the mission or you don't leap. That was stated implicitly. And I remember being in my living room in my college apartment watching, I guess, A Leap for Lisa with a good friend of mine who came to the show through my fandom. And he looked at me and he said, what the hell do they mean success has nothing to do with leaping? That's the whole premise of the show. And I said, you're absolutely right. And then I realized they said that right before the dumbly Harvey Oswald episode because (laughs) Sam can't save Kennedy. It can't happen. Yes. So they have to have it out. And that's why all of a sudden success has nothing to do with leaping because show. And I'm sorry, it was a cheat. So I under okay I I got the timeline wrong can canonista I'm sorry uh, timeline police <laughs> but I still maintain my point that it was this left turn that was thrown in just so they could do a Lee Harvey Oswald episode yeah and chances are you're probably right I do agree with you it was explicitly stated earlier on in the series that they thought that Sam would have to succeed in his mission to be able to leap. But I think we also kind of have to remember too that Sam's original quantum leap had never been done before. They didn't know what the what the mechanics were. They didn't know what the rules were when he leapt. This was a scenario or this was a a theory that Ziggy had to try and get him to leap. And since it worked, it's what they they kept going with. I think it would make sense that over time they would figure out a little bit more about how it works. And I mean, it actually is implied in some episodes earlier than A Leap for Lisa that the original paradigm that they'd come up with was wrong. Like in Vietnam, Sam's mission was to ensure that Tom's platoon mission would save the POWs and the platoon fails. Also in the Lord Voldemort of episodes, which name shall not be said. Please don't say the name. (laughs) I won't. (laughs) Sam... It looked like it was go- he was going to be killed by the devil, but GTFW reset the leap, um, and that enabled Sam to put a stop to the killing spree before it even began. Uh, but it, and was, it was all a dream. Uh, no, 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 no. We have it on good rec- record from the primary source, the writer, that it actually happened. Bull- 
Anyway, <laughs> uh, do you want me? To, do you want me to give you? Do you want me to? No. Send you back to no. the uh, to the interview. <laughs> no, right. it's okay. It's it, all right. it no. I understand. Problem. I just once again we run into <laughs> yeah. my problem with um, quantum leap and the way it does supernatural stuff, and I just yes, that, I know. I think that that, that episode was failed on on many levels. Anyway, yeah, but, you, but you can't say it's not canonical because it's in the show. Uh, I got some more as well. In what price, Gloria? Sam can't leap till he gets his revenge on Buddy, right? In Thou Shalt Not, Sam won't leap until he helps his father reconnect with his daughter. Now, what this suggests is that Sam actually won't leap until he's satisfied enough that he's done enough to help. Like in the case of Vietnam, you could probably infer that even though the mission failed, Sam did do some good. He saved Tom and he made sure that Maggie Dawson won her Pulitzer, albeit posthumously, uh, even though the overall mission was failed. And we do, we do find out in Mirror Image that he is he has does have a fair amount of control over his own leaping, so it suggests that if he's satisfied enough to leap, then he'll leap. You are right about the fact that there has been a paradigm shift, but I do think that it if it, it makes sense that the paradigms would shift as they learn a bit more about how the mechanics work. And I also think that, that it, it helped it, that, that, okay, that makes sense in universe. And, but I also want to think practically as a show, yeah. show producers, maybe it's more fun, especially after five seasons that Sam doesn't always save the day. So we, yeah. we we're okay. Um, and I think an episode that shows that is Tahoe Tep, another kind of miserable supernatural <laughs> episode, but. I mean, Sam really doesn't do Chris anything about, about that one, are we? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and I feel like I'm giving away a lot of stuff that I want to talk about in future podcasts. So I'm gonna I'm gonna keep mum. Something else in the uh, Lee Harvey Oswald show you asked was how could Al be accessing Oswald's diary to tell Sam what to do when Sam was in Oswald's place at the point in time when Oswald was writing the diary and preventing Oswald it. from writing it? <laughs> yeah, right, right, exactly. Yeah. Uh huh. What you need to remember is that there actually was a timeline in which Oswald wrote the diary, and nothing changes until Sam changes it. So until Sam is at the point in time where Oswald wrote the diary, the diary exists, and it can be accessed. Also, since Al remembers both timelines in Honeymoon Express after Weitzman's replaced by Diane McBride, it's also reasonable to infer that Ziggy keeps a record of the original timeline as well. But even if not, and the diary does disappear after Sam prevents Oswald from writing it, it could be a situation like Back to the Future where the changes happen gradually. So Ziggy was, should still be able to access it with enough time for Al to regurgitate it to Sam so that Sam can do it. Now, I agree the scene isn't without problems. I do have an issue with it as well, because since we know we're living in, Sam, in Sam's universe with the changes he's put in place, then the diary shouldn't exist, even though <laughs> even though in historical records it still does. So perhaps Oswald, he was mind merging with Sam quite a lot. Maybe he was mind merging so much that he actually wrote it in the waiting room while Sam was carrying out the events. Or maybe he just wrote it later. Uh, however, you got to fill in your head cannon, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But that's a, that's a good lead into the only thing I really want to talk about from Future Boy as well. Pretty much the exact same paradox. Very similar situation. How could Mo Stein teach Sam the string theory if Sam is the one who taught Mo? Where did the string theory actually come from? Again, there was a timeline where Sam invented the string theory. It's the timeline where Sam made his initial quantum leap. I mean, let's recall, until Sam leaps into Mo's life and helps Mo to complete the theory... 
Mo doesn't have it finished. He doesn't complete it. And again, nothing changes until Sam changes it. So the origin of the string theory is the timeline where Sam made his original quantum leap. But it does make me wonder, in the revised timeline, since Mo taught Sam much, much earlier now, did this mean that Sam made extra revisions to it and refine it even more? And did this affect the project? And I'd venture to say that it probably did, considering how much the project does evolve and advance in the future episodes. What do you think? I am kind of baffled as to what you mean in when you say the timeline where Sam made his original quantum leap. What What's the distinction between that timeline and the timeline that we're looking at in the TV show? I'm not following. Think about Sam's life. He is born, goes through childhood, goes to uni, builds Project Quantum Leap, then makes his quantum leap into the past. Yeah? Right. It's that timeline where he creates the string theory. It's not until after he makes his initial quantum leap that he meets up with Mo Stein and helps Mo to refine his theory. Does that kind of make sense? Right. But the yeah. fact that Mo then teaches him, yes. it, it so all makes it all remember, makes linear sense. Yes. So in once Sam makes his leap, he revises the timeline. There's there's another timeline that comes into play. So in this one, where Sam is taught the string theory at a very, very young age from Mo Stein, I'm just wondering, did Sam make any extra revisions to the string theory? Did he refine it anymore? And did this affect the project at all? I don't see that as happening because he, Mo is not influencing Sam at a later point. Mo is influencing the 10-year-old Sam who went on to create Project Quantum Leap and then went on to influence Mo. It's just it's just a nice sort of figure eight, but it's all linear and it all makes sense. I don't see that as then affecting because the Sam before he leapt, Sam saw Captain Galaxy talk about the string theory. It's just mm -hmm. as simple as that. And Sam didn't change that. He caused it. But in his in his lifetime, if you're going to take for granted that we're living in Sam's universe, 10-year-old Sam Beckett always saw that. And 47-year-old Sam Beckett was always there to influence Mo to teach him that. And to me, that's a perfectly uh, linear it, – it's timeline shenanigans and it's fun, but it makes complete sense. And I don't think that there was an original timeline where Sam had the string theory, then leapt, then influenced Mo, and then Mo re-influenced Sam in a different way. I think that well, Sam no, 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 no. Just wait a sec. Just wait a sec. Mo Stein died before the, that episode aired in the original timeline. How on earth could he teach Sam Beckett? the time the, the string theory if he's dead good point i <laughs> uh, you know maybe maybe he did one show before before he left i i really i don't know i don't know hayden <laughs> stumped you yeah i hadn't considered that I, I only took the whole segment but i stumped you <laughs> <laughs> i still like my interpretation of it better because it's just more fun oh it is fun all right, we just say, have to remember nothing changes until Sam changes it. That's the main yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. And here's yeah, and I guess here's where it, it, it here's the rub. I mean, Quantum Leap is not um like a locked time loop kind of kind of thing. I there there are different theories of time travel where um 
you can't change the past because everything's already happened. If a time traveler is going to go to influence the past, it's already written into our history. There's no such thing. Quantum Leap is the complete opposite premise. It's the back to the future. Absolutely. Where you create a different reality by going back to the past. Mm -hmm. So I was looking at that originally my interpretation was, well, it's all locked. It already happened. So therefore, but when you look at it and say, okay, well, Mo died trying to hop a train, um, then yeah, who knows? Then we we get into that that gray area. Yeah. The entire premise of the show is to put right what once went wrong. So it has to have gone wrong at some point. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So hmm, maybe in a way, Sam caused Quantum Leap that way. Maybe that was God, fate, time, whatever, ensuring that Sam, little 10-year-old Sam Beckett, would go on to create Quantum Leap. Makes me wonder what happened to the teenage Sam Beckett that ended up in the waiting room too. You're talking about from the 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 Leap Home? From the Leap Home, yeah. Whether that had any influence on it as well. Um, they never really went into waiting room mechanics in that I episode, I guess, necessarily. You know, that would yeah. have been interesting. Oh, it's just something fun to think about, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, it is. It certainly yeah. is. Yeah, the project probably would have been on lockdown, knowing that it was Sam who had leapt into Sam. Saying, don't say yeah. anything, because if you remember in the first the first episode, I mean, Al couldn't even talk to Sam, or in Starcrossed, Al couldn't even talk to Sam yeah. about, you know, something that might affect the time traveler's own timeline that was sam's chief rule so yeah i'm so glad you brought that up this is the very last thing i want to talk about okay all right you were talking about what was sam's original intention when he built quantum leap and i actually do agree with you that he probably just wanted to go and see the past not so much change it even though we do find out in mirror image subconsciously he always wanted to make the world a better place but I think the original explicit intention of Quantum Leap was to go back and see the past. But you, then you were wondering, well, why on earth do they have an observer? Mm-hmm. It's probably just as a failsafe so that uh, they actually still do have some kind of an anchor to the current timeline. Uh, sorry, not the current timeline. The current point in time. And um, to just make sure that uh, Sam doesn't get lost. Uh, so. Obviously, it didn't quite work out that way, but yeah, it just seems like having the observer there would be for a lifeline. Well, I think the maybe the rub with the what you know the time traveler experiment that went a little caca. Let's define <laughs> caca in that was Sam supposed to just leap back as himself to observe and then report back to an observer who was in the imaging chamber watching what he did. Maybe that was a government mandated thing to make sure he didn't change history or to see if he could change history. Um, and was was the caca part that he wound up in Tom Stratton? It's an interesting conjecture because yeah, yeah, and they leave it deliberately muddy because it, it's almost like the baby in eight and a half months. <laughs> um, why define it? Yeah. You know, you just you just have this premise, and where where the nerds? I don't think the average viewer even considered what was Project Quantum Leap originally supposed to accomplish, and what did that look like. And this is the yeah, first exactly. time I've ever articulated that idea that I just did. I never even thought about it really that deeply until now. Maybe Sam was supposed to, like in Mirror Image, maybe he was supposed to leap as himself. And then, yeah. you know. The well, this is Quantum Deep, remember? Yeah. 
So, well, thank you, Hayden. <laughs> yeah, no worries. Um, but yeah, I'm pretty sure that you covered pretty much all the trivia in um, your your original discussion as well. So we won't bother with a trivia segment this time. And there's no news either. So that's uh, okay. probably enough from me today. <laughs> all right, my friend. Well, this has been fun. Yeah. It has been, and I really hope that uh, we can continue um, having these kind of fact check discussions because they are a lot of fun. Yeah, Hopefully they're not too offensive. No, no, good, <laughs> good and geeky. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Oh. I mean, it's quantum deep. We're going to go deep. <laughs> Sounds like fun. Chris, you were definitely right when you said that was a a particularly long edition of Quantum Deep, but uh, a really fascinating one as well. And I think it was that that really got us starting to talk about uh, maybe doing something a little bit different with the show uh, in future. Yeah, um, this is going to be weird. You guys, uh, you know that uh, Allison, Matt and myself have been sort of pinch hitting for a while, but we've been talking to Albie about it and he seems to really like the dynamic. So he was talking about us doing it more long term. And because of that, uh, we just got our heads together and we started to think, okay, since everything is so new with the way we're doing the podcast now, it makes sense to just sort of take a step back and assess all of the moving parts because, I mean, I've been on the podcast before and I've been a regular contributor, but I've never had to produce it from scratch. And I'm doing a little bit more of that these days. And there's just so much in this podcast. it's, It's too much good content. So we've been toying with how we want to maybe change things. And I made a proposal. I don't know how it's going to be received by the audience. But if this segment of Quantum Deep is any indication, I'm hoping that it's going to be received well. Because what we decided to try um, going forward, it might be the next episode or the episode after that, is since we're releasing the podcast on a biweekly basis, once every two weeks, we have a down week. And why not take all of the content that we have that are these three, four-hour podcasts and cut them in half so that we can do um, one show one week that focuses mainly on an episode, what Allison, Matt, and I are doing here, what we're all doing here, and then take all the other great stuff that we have and give that its own platform and maybe expand on that a bit. And I spoke to Alvi about it. I spoke to Hayden about it because Hayden is the one that's going to have to shoulder that load because it would basically be his show because Quantum Deep would be a big part of that. But it's not going to become two podcasts. Um, I mean, Hayden will still be part of this show. He'll be doing the news with Zoe when there is news and Zoe will still be our announcer. Uh, Allison, Matt, me... We will be contributing in different ways to the second show. And um, if that segment of Quantum Deep is any indication, it just gives us another platform to go along. I don't know about you guys. I'm just I'm just going to say it. The first time Albie put out a four-hour Quantum Leap podcast, I looked at it and I said, is he crazy? Is he, he's like <laughs> saying, I dare you to listen. I dare you to listen. And, uh, it's really intimidating. It, it, it was intimidating to me, and it still is. And it's intimidating to new listeners as well. And I feel like it, it helps to have the podcast be split up. And, you know, you could be like, okay, well, there, there isn't um, a main discussion about the episode going on. But then here's some more stuff going on this week, talking about uh, this episode a little more deeply. And um, 
So I think that'll be nice for people to to have constant content coming out in in a more digestible format. And I think with the length that some of them were have, have been getting to, I I doubt anyone's been really listening to them end to end in a single sitting. So having them broken up like this should really support that. And like I said, guys, I mean, we're just feeling our way here. This is all new to everyone. We're just trying to figure out what might make the most sense under this new dynamic. If this turns out not to work so well, we'll go back to the drawing board again. The thing is that we're all in it together. We're all committed to making the best podcast or podcasts possible, the best content possible, and presenting it to you in a way that is the most compelling. So stay tuned for more news on this. This is just the beginning of this conversation. We'll be talking about this much more in future podcasts and watch your feed because the new show will be debuting soon, probably within the next two episodes, just depending on how the production shakes out. So... So cool, right, guys? Very exciting. Yeah, and people should definitely let us know what they think about it uh, in the feedback. Hint, hint. (laughs) (laughs) All right, now's the time that we tell you what's coming next on the podcast. And guys, I've been waiting to do this all week because it's just been running through my head. Can I just say it? Private dancer, a dancer (laughs) for money. Tell me I'm alone. Do what you want want me me to do. do. Private Tina Turner singing in the most unsexy voice about (laughs) oh about prostitution. It's just uh. (laughs) did you have to? They don't use the that song in it though because it came later. So you don't you don't get any of that in Private Dancer. I'm excited for that. I love this episode, so I'm looking forward to doing a podcast on Private Dancer. So, guys, I mean, I don't know that I'm excited to talk about Sam in a 70s disco, but it's certainly going to be a change from, you know, 50s live television. Uh, change for the better, change for the worse. I guess we're going to have to stick around and see. <laughs> I, I think it's great. So we're going to have some dueling viewpoints on this. Yeah, it's it's a fun episode. It's fun, but it's not one I ever think of much. So it'll be fun to talk about it and to sort of reapproach it thinking what you lunatics are going to think. So until then, I've been Christopher DeFilippis. I've been Alison Pregler. And I will be Matt Dale. And we'll see you next time, everyone, for Private Dancer. Everybody, dancer <laughs> stop, for stop. money. No, 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 no. Do <laughs> what you want me to. <laughs> and then we have to pay all the rights. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Quantum Leap Podcast, hosted by Allison, Matt, and Chris, with voice talent and contributions from Zoe Dean and Hayden McQueenie. Visit us at quantumleappodcast.com. To support the show, please go to patreon.com slash quantumleappodcast. The Quantum Leap Podcast is edited by Albie, Christopher DeFilippis, and Juan Nero. The production assistant is Jesse Newman. The executive producer of the Quantum Leap Podcast is Albert Burge. Juan Miro, Christopher DeFilippis, and Hayden McQueenie are the co-executive producers. The thoughts expressed on this podcast are those of the individual and do not necessarily represent or reflect those of the Quantum Leap podcast, its partners, or affiliates. 
The Quantum Leap universe and all it contains is the property of Belisarius Productions and Universal Television. The Quantum Leap podcast is not affiliated with Belisarius Productions or Universal Television, and no copyright infringement is intended. Please visit barrenspace.com for this and other amazing content. The Quantum Leap podcast is a Baron Space production. And remember to tune in tomorrow when Captain Galaxy... And future boy. Blast off for another adventure in time. Until then, I'll see you in the future. We're clear. <laughs>